Hi, listeners. This is the 80,000 Hours Podcast, where we have unusually in-depth conversations about the world's most pressing problems, what you can do to solve them, and whether we need a silly intro joke for absolutely every episode, regardless of the topic. I'm Rob Woodlin, Head of Research at 80,000 Hours. Back in episode 130 and 136, I spoke with Will McCaskill about his new book, What We Owe the Future, where, among other things, he argues that what people value is far more fragile and historically contingent than it might at first seem. As an example of that, uh, today it feels like the abolition of slavery was an inevitable part of the arc of history. But Will laid out in his book why he thinks the best research on the topic suggests that that's actually not the case. A lot of the background research he was referring to came from today's guest, Christopher Brown. Uh, And given that this was maybe my favorite part of Will's book, or at least the part that I and many other readers found most provocative, I was super delighted when Christopher agreed to come on the show to discuss all of this. He's uh, arguably the best person in the world to talk about how generalized opposition to slavery got started and then grew into a widespread movement over the next 150 years, why abolitionism took off where and when it did rather than somewhere else or much earlier or much later, and whether or not this process was inevitable as the Industrial Revolution progressed. Christopher definitely didn't disappoint, so if you're interested and excited by these topics, then you should definitely be excited for this interview. We cover a ton in this conversation, including what signs of anti-slavery sentiment existed before the 17th century, how abolitionism became a mainstream view in Britain during the 18th century, how we can ever know uh, whether a change in history was highly likely to happen versus very chancy and easily prevented, whether there's some change that we could make to the setup of the world in 1600 that would actually make it probable for slavery to remain widespread today, the distribution of slavery globally and historically, the main counter-arguments that people raised to abolition at the time, why so many founding abolitionists were Quakers, the role of economic factors in causing these ideas to get a foothold, and of course, as always, the best arguments we can find against Christopher's view on the inevitability of abolition. Just a note that I did have some technical difficulties on my end for this one for the first couple of hours. And by technical difficulties, I mean I screwed up my microphone setup. Uh, our engineering team has made a heroic effort at improving my audio, and it actually sounds uh, totally fine. But if you're wondering why my voice isn't quite as beautiful to listen to as it normally is, uh, that's what's going on. All right, without further ado, I bring you Christopher Brown. speaking with Christopher Lothi-Graham. Christopher is a professor of history at Columbia University, specializing in the history of the British Empire during the 17th and 18th centuries, in particular slavery, the Atlantic slave trade, and the movement for its abolition. Years ago, he did his DPhil at Oxford University on a Rhodes Scholarship, before returning to the US to work at Rutgers University, then Johns Hopkins University, and finally Columbia University, where he teaches and supervises doctoral students on these topics to this very day. He's the author of Moral Capital, Foundations of British Abolitionism, as well as Arming Slaves from the Classical Era to the Modern Age. And he's written for the New York Times, the London Review of Books, among many other outlets. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Christopher. Very glad to be here. Thank you for the invitation. I hope we're going to get to talk about how slavery was abolished and whether or not that was an inevitability. But first, what are your main research interests and other projects these days? Yeah, so right now I'm doing more and more work on the Atlantic slave trade itself. Um, And I'm increasingly looking at the experience of European men who were resident in present-day Ghana, present-day Nigeria, Senegal, Gambia. These were the guys who were sent out by slave ship merchants 
um, you know, from Liverpool, from Bristol, and from London to do the work of coordinating the slave trade on the ground. And I'm very interested in the experience of those people as essentially tiny minorities in West African societies who were serving as liaisons between uh, West African uh, slaving merchants and British European slaving merchants. Wow. So these are the descendants of people who were leading the slave trade in, in West Africa, basically a few centuries on. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's most, of these, <laughs> most of these guys who were sent out died very quickly. You know, the mortality rate for Europeans in West Africa in the first six months was somewhere around 40 to 50 percent. You know, so to say turnover was high is, a, you know, obviously a major exaggeration, yellow fever, malaria, yeah. um, all those things uh, chewed up people very quickly. But, you know, they were really significant as linchpins in the operation of the Atlantic slave trade. And one of the things that I'm trying to understand is how the Atlantic slave trade worked on an everyday basis. You know, it's Tuesday, January 3rd, 1742, and we're on the beaches near Cape Coast Castle. What's going on on that particular day? That's what I'm, that's what I'm really trying to, it's, it's, it's the texture of life. It's the everydayness of something that we, you know, rightly look back on as horrific yeah. that I'm really trying to understand what for the people who are, who are doing this work. You know, what is their experience? What is their outlook? How do they understand themselves? How do they understand the people that they're dealing with? How do they understand uh, the people they're trading? So look, there's, there's been a big turn in history over the last 50 years or something towards uh, focusing a little bit less on, you know, great figures, leaders, uh, military history and so on towards think, uh, trying to understand everyday experiences and beliefs and attitudes and lives of typical people, which I think previously historians really hadn't thought was necessarily worth paying all that, all that much attention to. Is, is that right? Yeah. I mean, it's a movement that's been going on for some time now. You know, it's in the profession, we talk about social history, which is really trying to get at the lives of people who don't leave papers, who are not famous, to try to get at the, uh, as I was saying before, the texture of life in particular communities. But it's very challenging to do that because the records are not preserved in the same way. You can understand people at, in a mass rather than as, you know, individual biographies typically. Um, and for the yeah. Atlantic slave trade, it's even harder because most of the folks who went out there left very few traces of their lives. And so you have to be very creative and very determined uh, to try to, um, you know, recover some aspects of that experience. And obviously, it's even more difficult to get at the experience of enslaved men and women themselves. Um, and, you know, scholars, many colleagues and friends of mine have been doing that work. I have a kind of perverse interest in the slave traders themselves. And when they're in West Africa, they were both very powerful and they were also very weak. And so that tension between being in a position of economic power, but also in a position of, you might say, military, political, even biological weakness is something that I find very interesting. So you were saying that there are this descendants of these slave traders in West Africa today. What are... Yeah, I wasn't quite saying, I mean, I wasn't quite, I mean, my point is less that, um, well, yes, I mean, the Atlantic slave trade does not work without West African elites capturing um, and selling folks. And so, yes, there are, you know, descendants of slave traders in West Africa. There are descendants of slave traders in Europe and the Americas. This is an issue that sometimes confuses people. And I think one way to think about it is 
the wealthy and powerful from two different worlds conspiring to exploit the weak, um, the poor, uh, the politically defeated, um, those who've been condemned to crimes. And so it's, uh, it's in some ways a kind of an international economically privileged group um, that's battening on a very vulnerable group of people and selling them into slavery in the Americas. Yeah. Okay, uh, we'll come back to some of these things in a sure. minute, but it might, might, might be good to, to, to wind back a little bit to the yeah, start. Yeah, no, I mean, absolutely. Me, so we'll, we'll get some context for the conversation and then maybe uh, zoom yeah. out a little bit, think, think about slavery as a historical phenomenon. So yeah, yeah a, a bit of background that might be useful for, for some listeners is what, one reason we're, we're, we're talking today is that Will McCaskill, a uh, regular guest on the show, started to work quite a bit in his yes. book from this year, What We Are the Future, um, yes. as part of this broad argument that we shouldn't be complacent and take the abolition of slavery quite so much for granted as, as perhaps we tend to do today. Uh, and this is part of Will's argument that we can't just assume that moral values are always going to improve uh, and are going to necessarily get better as technology advances. And that we should actually have some level of fear that in fact things might go in a bad direction in future, or that as we haven't gone in as good a direction in the present as, as we perhaps think that we have. Yeah. We discussed that with him back in episode 136 earlier this year. So yeah, I'm really keen to hear how much you agree with all of that, given your expertise on abolitionism, and perhaps also field some arguments for and against the idea that the anti-slavery movement was historically contingent, or at least not uh, inevitable. And I guess it, it's one of the lines of argument in the book that seems to have been the most frequently disputed among kind of reviews and commentary that I've seen. And I think it's just because the notion that slavery could have persisted into our current era violates common sense for most readers. It feels so so crazy and so awful to, to contemplate. And then, and then people think about that and they generate specific economic and kind of cultural arguments to explain why that, see why that feels intuitively so wrong to them. Yeah, I did, actually, do you want to comment on that first? Yeah, I mean, it's obviously a big topic and it's one of these subjects that by its very nature, can't be proved or disproved, right? We don't know, the fact of the matter is, we don't know what would have happened in the 19th century and into the early uh, 20th century if anti-slavery movements had not arisen at the end of the 18th century, uh, if the British slave trade had not been abolished in 1807, um, if there had not been an international movement to suppress the slave trade through the first half of the 19th century. I mean, we, we don't know. Um, And it's important to kind of start from that um, position. I've taken the view that the things that did happen that led to slave trade abolition and emancipation, given where the world had been in the 18th century, that the changes in the 19th century were not only not inevitable, but they were actually very unlikely. And I ground that in the economic strength of the Atlantic slave trade and the economic value of slavery in the 19th century, even in the face of abolitionist and emancipationist movements. There is no record, at least that I'm aware of, of slave traders or slaveholding societies to saying that they had had enough and they weren't going to do this anymore. Slaving is as old as human history. Um, yeah. And I think we tend to forget that it was a norm rather than an exception. It took different shapes in different times. And so what happens in the 19th, I mean, this is sort of big picture, but what happens in the 19th century, I really think is quite unusual. Um, wow. And I don't think it's the natural consequences of either economic forces or cultural um, forces. Okay. I guess 
Yeah, and as much as uh, one of the arguments is that it was just incredibly profitable, there was an enormous industry and enormous amount of money invested in this. Maybe a, a modern day analogy might be to the oil industry, where people make arguments, often you know reasonable, plausible ones, that we should stop using coal or stop using oil. But it's not inevitable that we're going to do that anytime soon uh, because it's just so costly to do it uh, and from, from an economic point of view. So there's a lot, there's a massive industry arrayed against that, uh, against that notion. Is, do you think that's a, a good parallel? It's not a, bad, it's not a bad comparison just in terms of the economic logic of it. You know, I think what also has to be said is, you know, in the way that so much of our, I mean, obviously this is changing now, but so much of the infrastructure of our lives takes fossil fuels for granted. It's, it's sort of premised on the existence and the exploitation of fossil fuels. You know, the same was true with slavery in the early modern era. I mean, it was kind of baked into the world that emerged in the Americas in the 1500s. And to get out of that world required a degree of um, imagination and commitment uh, that, you know, was really kind of uh, special. And I think the thing that, I mean, we'll get to this, but one thing I really want to try to make clear is that a certain kind of ideals or values are not enough to make that transition, um, that it needed to feel useful and beneficial to really important people um, for that change to take place. It wasn't enough to say, in the same way, it's not enough to say, oh, fossil fuels, you know, uh, the exploitation of them is, is bad for the climate bad for a lot of things, that there needed to be other reasons for that change. But yeah, it's not a bad comparison, actually. Yeah. Okay, I think we should uh, start out. I mean, lots of people, I guess, including me, have the intuition that surely slavery would have gotten rid of it uh, sooner or later, that you know, the arguments are just so compelling. But it's so hard to have a trained, like, useful intuition about that, knowing so little about the historical details of how abolition actually actually came about and and just and the history of slavery more broadly. So probably we should start. I spent quite a bit of the conversation just getting out the, the basic facts here because I think many people, including me, uh, well, I'm not super familiar with them now, and I was extremely unfamiliar with them yeah. <laughs> uh, but, but before this recent conversation this year. We're going to talk a lot about the, the British Empire between the 17th and 19th centuries. But first, maybe let's take a moment to consider all of the times before that. I guess, first off, what is the history of slavery in general? I guess you were saying it's extremely common. Can you flesh that out a bit more? Oh, my goodness. Um, well, I mean, anybody who's studied the classics knows that um, slaveholding was essential in classical Greece, um, the Roman Republic and the Roman Empire. You know, there was significant uh, trafficking in men, women, and children across the Sahara from really earliest recorded history down to the 19th, early 20th century. Um, Vikings made their names as Vikings by slave raids all around the North Sea and the Mediterranean. I mean, you know, slavery has a deep ancient history. And I'm just talking about the European context right now. When Europeans arrived in the Americas, they started enslaving Native Americans. Um, and when that became politically difficult and costly, you know, they turned to West Africans where they already had an experience of West African captives who would come up through uh, North Africa into the Mediterranean. So, you know, the story of the conquest, the settlement of the Americas is partially about the involuntary migration of West Africans. I mean, one colleague I have has, has made the argument something like two-thirds to three-quarters of the migrants to the Americas down to the 1800 were of African descent. 
you know, we think about migration often as a European story into the Americas. But at least down to the period of the French Revolution, there are far more African migrants uh, to the Western Hemisphere than there were European migrants. What about the, the rest of the world and other times? Like I said, if we look at the rest of Africa or India or, or China, was slavery ubiquitous through all of these places? Yes, although what starts to become difficult is there are so many different forms of coercion, dependency on freedom. And we use the term slavery to capture what is, in fact, a great variety of practices. One challenge, for example, that modern audiences sometimes have is the idea that slaves were used to generate wealth as, you know, forced laborers. Many societies, and this is especially true um, in the Middle East, um, in much of Islamic civilization, in large parts of South Asia, in parts of uh, medieval, early modern East Asia, what comes Korea, China, slaves were used for things that were employed in ways that were sometimes for sex, sometimes as, you know, the, the coerced loyal servants to the head of state. So, you know, that, the, the sort of the practices of slavery are so varied. What happens in the Americas is one really important iteration. And if we're looking for sort of common features, you know, in some ways it's the, the social and legal fact of being possessed by another person and utilized as if you are a thing, which is to say as if you have no will of your own. And it's obviously a fiction because people do have wills of their own, regardless of how, you know, subjugated they are. But what slavery in some ways attempts to achieve is a dehumanization of the human. And so when scholars look to try to identify slavery in other times and other places, often what they're battening on is they're focusing on is the is that is that set of practices. But yeah, but it's not it wasn't invented um, in colonial America um, by any means. Yeah. What signs of anti-slavery sentiment were there elsewhere or earlier in history, but before kind of the 17th century, which is maybe where we'll start the current story? Yeah. So this is also really interesting because it doesn't actually take a great deal of moral insight to see that slavery raises all kinds of deep moral and ethical issues. And in the civilizations where we have records that allow us to explore those tensions, those views. You know, it's, it's a kind of a, a familiar way of thinking about this subject is where you see defenses of slavery, there must also have been questions and attacks on it. And, you know, in Greek times and Roman times, there are all kinds of ways that slavery is justified. Sometimes the idea that an enslaved person is naturally a slave, that was, of course was Aristotle's a way of looking at the subject very famously. Some emphasize that's the body that's enslaved, but not the spirit. Um, and there's a whole body of Roman thought among the Stoics that made that point. Um, huh. There's a, a, a very long tradition in the Latin legal tradition right down to the Middle Ages that regards slavery as against natural law, as a violation of natural law, but instead as a creature of the laws of nations, that it comes conventional in human civilizations, even though it's not part of, you know, the natural order of things. 
So, you know, then what? Ha- the other thing that happens is that, and this is actually really important for this subject, is that slavery is a state that because it's regarded as a kind of a misfortune rather than, um, because in the, especially in the Mediterranean world, anybody can be enslaved, um, taken as captive. There are no, there's no races that are marked as slave races per se. There develops a very strong notion that, first of all, obviously the status of slavery is something to avoid, but an identity, collective identities begin to establish around who should be enslaved and who should not be enslaved. And this, is in, this goes with the rise of Christendom and then with the development of Islam, where the taking of slaves is what you do to those who are not your religious, of your you know, religious world. So, so in fact, it's kind of a, a religious defense. So that's one way that people begins, try to explain it. It begins in the Middle Ages to acquire a kind of a, a religious framework where yeah. it's those who are of a different confessional world are those who, um, who should be enslaved. So it sounds like throughout history, people came up with various different explanations for how it is that enslavement could be justified. Which I guess you're taking as a sign that people felt that there was something to defend. Uh, it's a sign that there was at least personal discomfort That's or right. perhaps some sort of collective discomfort that people didn't feel like this was necessarily right. Exactly. So they had to rationalize it some way or another. Yeah. But was there, were there any kind of, was there any, any organized movements? Uh, did, did people ever get together and say, no, actually, we think this is bad and we should get rid of it? Right. Well, I mean, the first thing to say, and this is, it's very easy to miss this, but it's fundamental. Enslaved men and women did whatever they could to get out of the status of being slaves. And they did that individually. They did it collectively. And so I want to be clear that in talking about anti-slavery today, you know, you and I are talking about what we'll mostly be talking about is the efforts by people who were neither slaveholders nor slaves um, to challenge that system. You know, it's quite correct to see slave rebellions, uprisings as a, as a manifestation of an anti-slavery mindset. So I want to be really clear about that. Um, you know, from a, from a collective point of view, no. I mean, there are not movements as such that are aimed at the abolition of slavery itself. Now, there are, you know, there are moments, for example, in the mid-16th century, there's a great debate in the Spanish court around whether the enslavement of Native Americans in Mexico and Peru and uh, South America um, in the Caribbean has, legit, has legal and moral legitimacy. You know, and, and famously, the friar Bartolome de las Casas, you know, with several others, challenges whether uh, the crown has the right to enslave the people uh, that they have conquered. And there are all kinds of limits that are put on in consequence of the kinds of coercion that can be put in place. But this is what kind of anti-slavery looks like really prior to the 18th century, which is specific challenges to specific practices among specific people in particular specific moments and places, rather than the much grander view that slavery itself everywhere as practiced is illegitimate and therefore should be struck from the face of the earth. Yeah. Just to deal with the, the slave rebellion issue, as I understand that there were slave revolts out of people attempting to escape enslavement uh, throughout history, but like none of them was really enduringly successful until the revolution in Haiti, say in 1791. Uh, why, why is it that 
all of these attempts by enslaved people to overturn slavery, at least in their case, that they never really presented an, an enduring or really functional challenge to slavery as, a, as an institution. It's such an interesting question, Rob, because it really goes to our question of what we mean by success. Um, and the Haitian Revolution does set a kind of a standard by which all other rebellions against slavery in the Americas anyway is measured because the insurgents overthrew um, what was at the time the wealthiest, most prosperous slave colony in the Americas and perhaps the most prosperous of any that had ever existed. And, you know, how that happened has a lot to do with the specifics of that revolutionary moment and the specifics of Saint-Domingue. You know, one thing to think about is, you know, enslaved men and women were often very successful in freeing themselves individually and sometimes collectively by running away, by escaping, um, sometimes by, you know, murdering the families that held them, um, by establishing redoubts in the back country in the hinterlands and maroon communities where they could establish their own freedom. You know, the problem is that, in the Americas anyway, the entire world was conceived in a way to keep enslaved men and women under control. And it's hard to fully, it's hard to fully reckon with the degree of terror that was inflicted on enslaved men and women from the moment they arrived in the Americas or from the moment that they came of age in the Americas to know that if you crossed a line in any way, you could have an arm chopped off, you could have your, you know, hamstring torn, you could have an ear lopped off. And so, you know, it's um, to ask the question of why not more rebellions in some ways, I think really can be turned around. It's sort of like it's extraordinary that there were any at all. Yeah. You know, and it really speaks to that, you know, commitment, determination to be free. The, the, the period of, this, of the Haitian Revolution is very unusual. And so the distinctiveness of those events speaks to the distinctiveness of the moment. And those who were free, um, who became free or freed themselves, were manumitted or escaped, you know, in many instances, their freedom was, was fragile because, and this is why race was so important, you could mark out those who had been slaves by the color of their skin. So the, and so they were always under threat. And so they were always under threat. And the danger of being re-enslaved was always there. I think that this, and this really goes to why anti-slavery movements are so important, to imagine that the entire system could be destroyed requires a degree of imagination and political power um, oh, and capacity confidence. That, a, that an individual person, <laughs> I mean, if, if I decided that I wanted to overthrow the United States I could go shoot up the Capitol, and I hope the Secret Service is not listening to me right now. But I'd be dead. I'd be dead in a matter of seconds, right? You could get a thousand. It's tried on January six. You could get thousands of people together, right? The forces of order in any society are so much more powerful than the than its challengers. And so, you know, what enslaved men and women more often than not hoped to do was to escape, to get out from under slavery and to free the people that they cared about, their mothers, their fathers, their cousins, their kin, the people that they worked with. In some ways, that's as far, at least until the middle of the 18th century, uh, as they could imagine having an effect and having an influence. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think I was mostly um, 
Yeah, I've listened to history lectures from like, you know, ancient Rome and ancient Greece, where there's many more cases, I think, of slaves being freed. And it's going to be in that context where it's a little bit surprising that even when they became writers and intellectuals and politicians and so on, um, to a modern sensibility, it's shocking that they weren't then campaigners uh, against slavery. But I suppose it's possible we've lost their words. It's possible just that it, it, it's such a leap to imagine that you can overthrow the, the social order that the great majority of people would just never contemplate such a thing, uh, even if they were personally really uh, appalled by what was going on. Yes, and I think in places where the enslavement seemed like a consequence of misfortune, captivity, you know, being conquered in war, um, somebody who had been captured in war, you know, someone who found themselves essentially on the wrong side of the master-slave relationship, if they were manumitted or they escaped, it was not unusual for them to become uh, slave. I mean, the famous case of this is a West African case of princes from, you know, what's present day Nigeria, who were slave traders, uh, son of a, you know, prominent slave traders, who themselves were taken captives, although they were not supposed to be taken captive, um, shipped to the Americas, brought to England, and then brought back to West Africa to improve diplomatic relations after those um, princes had been captured. And they went right back to slave trading, right? right. And you would think that somebody who had been um, who had seen it, who experienced it for themselves, um, would say, my God, I'm not going to do this anymore. Um, but there you have what we might think of today as class privilege, right? I mean, right. I'm not supposed to be enslaved. That's for other people. And once returning to the place of, of social status and privilege, they return back to their rightful you know, place of being able to trade other people. Um, yeah. It's not like that in the Americas because race operates very differently. And you can't escape the stain of being of enslaved background, even if you are free. Let's turn now to, I guess, the, the British Empire in the, yeah. in the 17th century. Um, yeah. Who were the early pioneers who started to argue that slavery was wrong and should be eliminated? Who were the, who, who were the major cast of characters here? Yeah. I mean, you can find individuals in most of the colonies in the mill, and you know what becomes. Think about New York and Pennsylvania, New Jersey, New England, where there are kind of isolated statements that have been come down to us about, you know, this seems immoral. It seems like it's questionable from the standpoint of our faith. But it's Quakers, it's the Society of Friends, who are really the first community that question the very moral basis of slaveholding in a consistent way. And it's important to say, though, that Quakers were slaveholders and slave traders, even though they were having these discussions amongst themselves as early as the late 17th century in the 1680s, 1690s. So it's it really, in some ways, the, you know, many of us who write on this subject find the seeds of the movement, although I'm hesitant about that metaphor, um, the seeds of the movement um, in Quakers and the Society of Friends. Yeah. So, so it does the journey from uh, slavery just being generally accepted by almost everyone, almost all of the time, to it being completely unacceptable and uh, abolished except for a handful of illegal cases. There's different filters that I guess we have to pass through. And we can tr- try to guess like which of these filters is the hardest uh, step to get through, which is the one that is least likely to, to happen if we were to you know, change history. A That's bit a great way of putting it. And I guess, so here we're talking about kind of one of the filters, which is that you need to get at least... A few people talking about this among themselves and sharing their ideas with their friends and objecting to it. And then I suppose the next filter is that we then they need to actually recruit other people uh, and start organizing and become a meaningful um, advocacy group within society. 
how important as a filter was this kind of stage that you first had some, you know, people who are engaged in the Quaker community who think that this is inconsistent with their faith or that something is wrong about this and they're starting to speak out and, and write about it. Was that a pivotal moment? Yeah, it begins as a kind of dissenting group within the Society of Friends who take the position that the violence that slavery requires goes against our uh, pacifistic values, that the wealth that slavery enables contradicts our witness on behalf of simplicity, um, that the pride that the control of other people um, that slavery allows conflicts with the values that we say we place on humility. And Quakers are unusual because they don't have essentially a ministry, a priesthood, because anyone can witness, um, express religious witness. It meant that those dissenters had a voice within the Society of Friends in terms of challenging the broader majority, and they couldn't be silenced in the way like, that's not orthodox, that's not, you know, those are not our beliefs, you know, they, they couldn't be shut down in the same way. And the Society of Friends, over the course of the 1700s goes through a period of, in some ways, worrying about having fallen away from the ideals of the founding era in the middle of the 17th century. And there's that fear that the religious practices have become kind of a habit, a ritual, rather than being really deeply believed in. And so Quaker testimony around slavery becomes part of a broader examination that's going on within the Society of Friends of why are we not as devout as our grandfathers and grandmothers had been? Why do we seem to become more like the rest of society? And as that questioning is happening, and they go through some crises in the middle decades of the 18th century, there are individuals who point to the issue of slavery as one way to restore a notion of their group identity. And this is really important. The key th- for Quakers initially, the sort of testimony against slavery is about establishing a agreement within the Society of Friends about what their values are, about what membership of the Society of Friends requires. And so it's very much about establishing a group identity, reinforcing a group identity around the fact that as Quakers, we find slaveholding violates our consciences. And this is a place they get to in the 1760s and 1770s. And and, and in fact, what happens is they get to the point where they say that if you don't accept this principle and if you continue to own slaves, you can no longer be a member of the Society of Friends. And Initially, that's really focused inward. They're not campaigning initially to try to transform their broader society, the broader community, the colony, the empire. It's about establishing a sense of who are we collectively. And so in the same way that Quakers develop a sense of we do not serve in war, right? We also increasingly, they take the view that to be Quaker means not to be a slaveholder, not to be a slave trader. But there is a tiny fraction of the colonial population. And so the interesting question you think about filters is how does that internal witness, that collective identity, then get turned outward and directed outward uh, to, the broader, um, to the broader society? And, and, and it's at that moment when that happens 
um, that you that there develops a sort of a broader anti-slavery movement in the British and American world. Yeah. So I guess one theory for why it is that abolitionism took off like in this place at this time or began to gain momentum uh, where it hadn't really anywhere else at any other time in any other place before might be that, well, the Quakers were just an extremely unusual religious group and they provided this or like small safe environment in which these ideas and I guess particular motivations in, in terms of identifying like self-identifying as a particular group who had their practices that their particular spiritual practices that defined them in distinction with the rest of society that that provided a place where this could get going where that hadn't existed before I guess the Quakers are they're definitely an unusual religious denomination in a global historical sense that the lack of hierarchy is quite peculiar the, the interest in hearing ideas from all kinds of different members of the congregation is is not typical. But I wonder, is, are, are they so different than other religious groups that have existed through history that that alone can explain the phenomenon? Uh, no, not alone, but they are really distinctive. I mean, one other thing I would add is that they believed in what we would call co-education almost from the get-go. Um, they had women as ministers, as traveling preachers. If you, can, you know, if you think about the 17th and 18th century world, this was highly unusual. Um, I mean, they really believed in a kind of equality across sex that no other Christian denomination, you know, in the European or American world believed in. And I would venture to say it's probably true for most other societies as well, with the exception of maybe some Native American societies. I mean, it really, really, really unusual in that regard. I think what kind of matters in a way is Quakers established really strong communities in places where slavery was present, but it wasn't absolutely fundamental to the social order. Pennsylvania, New Jersey, parts of New York and New England, you know, slaves were worked in what we come to know as the North um, from the very beginning of European settlement in those places. But they never become more than 20% of the population. In most instances, it's more like 5 or 10%. And even more important, slaves are not doing work that white men and women of limited means aren't doing. There's not like slave work in the way that there is slave work in the Chesapeake or even more in the, in the Carolinas or even more in the Caribbean. Um, and so what that means is Quakers were in a world where slavery existed, but the entire order wasn't dependent on it. Um, and so you combine their um, really unusual sort of social practices, their unusual religious beliefs, their really unusual pacifism, and in a place where slavery is present, and so they are confronted with the subject, but not fundamental, which is to say that it's not a kind of weight-bearing aspect of the society. It's a... It's a um, it's a set of features that make it possible to question it without risking a kind of a total overthrow of the socioeconomic order. And one way we can kind of see the importance of that is Quakers who were in Barbados never become <laughs> significant abolitionists. Um, because and Barbados they, is one of the main slave colonies, right? One or, of the yeah. main slaveholders, well, really the first one in the English, um, you know, in the English empire, the first major sugar colony. And there were a lot of Quakers in Barbados as of the late 17th century. And there were some dissenters there on slaveholding, but they were quickly shut down. Um, and a dissenting tradition never really develops there. So, you know, it's, it's, it's never just one variable. I mean, there are things that there are aspects of 
the Society of Friends that really are distinctive. But I think being at the peripheries, the boundaries, uh, the northern borderland of the plantation world means that they're really knowledgeable and thoughtful about it and invested in it to a degree, but not so much so that they can't question it in really important ways. Yeah, that, that's really interesting. So I guess an alternative explanation, or at least a contributing factor, could be that it, during this period of colonialism, there was more diversity in economic structures and social structures and populations in these different places that were being colonized. And that meant that, uh, you know, in one of these colonies, in one of these cities, you might get the right mix that would allow people, I guess, I guess you're saying what you needed was for slavery to be present so that people could see it and object to it. And especially very unpleasant kind of slavery that people would naturally really object to. But it had to not be so fundamental that opposing it would necessarily mean a complete revolution in the social order and would uh, be, be really brutally shut down by, by the powers that be. Yes, that's right. That's right. And it's the reason why in a North American context, um, it's Massachusetts, it's Pennsylvania, and New York to a degree, where anti-slavery organizing really becomes, where it coheres um, for the first time in the 1770s and the 1780s. One way to try to uh, answer this question, or get insight, some insight in this question of whether it's the Quakers that are a really important contributing factor is to ask whether we see incipient anti-slavery movements among other religious denominations. Like, was there a meaningful Catholic, a Roman Catholic anti-slavery or uh, Eastern Orthodox or uh, Muslim anti-slavery movements? And I guess if we don't see that, but we do see it quite a lot among the Quakers, then we, uh, then we might think, well, Society of Friends, they were, they, they were a massive factor. Whereas if we see signs of the same ideas cropping up elsewhere, then we might think, well, it might have happened just in one of them eventually sooner or later. Yeah. Did you know much about the, the history of, of other groups elsewhere? Yeah. I mean, let, we can sort of work from North America outwards. I mean, you know, the new Methodist movement that John Wesley founds in the 1730s and 1740s um, is concerned to minister to all people um, and not just Europeans and to try to find converts even outside the structures of the church. And they try to preach um, to enslaved men and women. And some of those evangelicals get very frustrated with slavery because plantation holders don't want their slaves to hear the gospel. Um, They don't want to discover that they have equality in Christ, that Christ died for all men and women. And they don't want their slaves to learn to read the Bible. If they start reading the Bible, they might start reading other things. And so Uh, There's definitely an evangelical strain of irritation and then opposition to a degree, which is oriented around the resistance they get to spreading Christianity in places where slaveholding really matters. So that's another trajectory that becomes important for what actually did happen, but in the absence of the Quakers might have become, you know, it might become a different route to the future that we know. You know, the story of the Catholic Church is really interesting because in the places where, um, especially in the Spanish and Portuguese colonies, manumission was far more common. And there were, you know, many more directives from the church about what it meant to be a Christian master, which meant a certain kind of practices of what what we might call sort of humane practices of you know, um, of treating enslaved men and women kindly, allowing them to go to church, allowing them in some cases to over time purchase their own freedom. Now, I mean, how much that happened is it's kind of an ideal that, that some parts of the church encouraged. 
But the way the Catholic Church largely dealt with the problem of slavery was, it was in a very broadest sense, to try to encourage a, a kind of a, almost peace between masters and slaves, so that the state of violence, which is natural to slavery, was instead sort of emphasized a degree of, of reciprocity. That's the, uh, that's the ideology. It didn't actually work out that way. But the Catholic Church didn't so much, there wasn't much challenges to the system as attempts to make slaveholders better people, if I could put it in the most crude possible sense. Well, was that the focus, the saving the souls of the, of the slaveholders because they might be harmed? Yes, there's that part of it too. Yeah. It's both. But there's also a real concern about the souls of enslaved men and women in the way that the Church of England say uh, Presbyterians in North America really were not much concerned with that at all. It's really the evangelical movements of the mid-18th century um, that make that an issue in the Anglophone world, in the British Empire, in the middle of the 18th century. I think I just want to say very quickly, Rob, is that you know recent scholarship on the cultural and moral thought in the Islamic world is really uh, recovering a not just a set of beliefs, but a set of of movements, really, to prevent Islamic men and women from being enslaved by either Christians or pagans. And especially in parts of West Africa, the Senegal River Valley, um, the Upper Gambia, um, you think about where today Mali is, Western Nigeria today, there were Islamic uh, revivals that aimed in part to prevent the export of Muslim slaves to Christian slave traders who are operating along the coasts. So we're learning more about, you know, what anti-slavery looked like in other places. But I would just emphasize in that particular instance that it is a anti-slavery that's about protecting the freedom of members of the faith rather than the notion that slavery in and of itself needs to be overthrown. Yeah, that, that does seem a little bit different. So, so the objection wasn't to slavery per se, it was to slavery by the infidels. So it's like, we can't be handed over to the infidels. Yeah. Was that the main objection? But yeah. did, I mean, did, did they also object to um, enslavement of Muslims by other Muslims? Because as I understand, well, least, you're not, what, yeah. yeah, well, you're not, I mean, the, the, under, I mean, this gets into a very complicated subject that we can only be very brief about, I guess. But um, under Islamic law, under all sort of systems of Islamic law, Muslims are not supposed to enslave other Muslims. Some Muslim powers, especially in the southern, in the Sudan, in the southern shores of the Sahara, um, would take the view that some um, African peoples who said they were Muslim were not really Muslim, and so therefore could be taken as slaves because they weren't, they weren't true Muslims, right? Um, and so what does it mean to be uh, Islamic and sort of how do you measure that? If they're not fully recognizable, then, you know, maybe they're, um, but, the, but the notion of um, enslavement of infidels, but um, Muslims not enslaving other Muslims is a very powerful notion in the Mediterranean world. And it's the same thing for Christians. I mean, Christians uh, do not enslave other Christians in Western Europe or in the Americas. Even though they, you know, they torture each other, they behead each other, they, you know, massacre each other. But um, the notion of of slavery is not what you do to those who are of the similar religious world. Just uh, quickly coming back to the to the Catholic Church. So it sounds like they they also saw that there was something that they were struggling to reconcile their theology with the practice of slavery. 
But I guess the, the, the approach that they took was to try to turn slavery into this kind of unfortunate temporary condition from which one might hope to escape and thereby make it, uh, yeah, I, I suppose then you could still say, well, these people can still be saved. They can still be converted in time and, they'll ju- and they're just kind of slaves in the meantime as a, as a personal misfortune. Is, am I understanding that, that right? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, this is where the <laughs> the historians um, push for specificity and complexity makes generalizations of like this very difficult because the fact of the matter is is that what it looks like in different parts of Brazil and what it looks like in say Cartagena, what it looks like in Peru, what it looks like in Mexico is all slightly different, um, and has also been studied to different degrees. I do think, though, that the basic contrast that Africans brought to the Americas should be baptized and should become members of the faith, that slaveholders should be concerned with the souls of the people that they hold in slavery, um, and that there are basic expectations with respect to the capacity to worship. And also importantly, to bring grievances against slaveholders, um, to complain of ill treatment. Enslaved men and women were allowed to marry in the church in most parts of Central America and, and South America in ways that were simply unthinkable in the British colonies. So there's, there's a kind of a, a wider legitimacy for forms of social life, for um, rights under law. Um, so that the property relationship still held, the dependence still held, the exploitation of labor still held, the control of the body still held. But the church operated in many instances as a kind of, not quite intermediary, um, but as another power that its spiritual authority could be used by enslaved men and women as leverage against the secular authority of slaveholders. But, you know, I say that, and then it's important to understand that the Jesuits were the largest corporate slaveholders in the Americas throughout the, you know, the early modern period. So it's, it's, a, very, it's a very complex picture. Yeah. I want to ask more questions about religion, but we should probably think about other things as well. Sure. I guess just, just coming back to the, the topic of how you got these, um, what do you call, like border uh, areas or fringe areas where there's some slavery, but it's not so essential to the social order. I suppose that, that can be a contributing factor, but I think it probably can't be decisive because there must have been places like regions like that elsewhere in the world uh, throughout history. Yeah. Absolutely. No, I, I mean, I, um, it's, not a, uh, it's, it's not even close to being decisive. The places where slavery, I mean, sometimes historians will make a distinction between slave societies and societies with slaves. Uh, This goes back to an analysis that a great classicist named Moses Finley suggested more than six decades ago and has been used by historians of slavery in different ways ever since. And the notion is that there are slave societies are those worlds in which slavery becomes fundamental, defining foundation of that society. And, you know, the classical cases being classical Rome, uh, you know, the the Caribbean, Brazil, the Southern United States, where the whole social, economic, and political order, the cultural world is shaped by slavery. And societies with slaves, by contrast, are those places where slavery exists, it's legal, 
It is uh, not necessarily question, not question, but its importance to the operation, um, to the social and economic world is not nearly to the same degree. And on the side of, at the end of this history that we're talking about, it's societies with slaves um, who are more likely to go through a period of emancipation that is less controversial, um, or at least, let's put it this way, it's easier to achieve than slave societies where to overthrow slavery is in fact to overthrow the world as it exists. Yeah. Okay, let's get back to the the Quakers that we were talking about in the um, American colonies. Because you're saying that so there was a time when these ideas were incubated as part, of, like increasingly as part of the self identity of Quakers, and I guess they were debating this within their various meetings, trying to decide you know, what is permissible behavior for a member of our congregation and and what is not. Um, was what was the, what was the, what was the next step in the story? I, I think what, one thread is that these ideas started spreading to Quaker congregations elsewhere in the world, and I guess you're also saying that they. Uh, having established this norm internally, then they uh, make the decision, I guess, to turn outwards and start uh, advocating for this to, to other groups rather than just keeping it as something that only concerns them. Yeah, that's right. But it does not move uh, smoothly or quickly or without controversy. And it really develops at first in Pennsylvania, where Pennsylvania Quakers, and especially those based in Philadelphia, as part of this movement of religious reform, internal reform, make uh, a witness against slavery, a definition of their communal identity. And then they push it. They push it out to Virginia. They push it out to North Carolina. They push it out to um, Massachusetts and Rhode Island and meet some resistance um, and meet resistance at Quaker meetings who take, to put it crudely, the view of, well, I get your point, but we're not going to do that. Um, you know, that's if you all decide that you want to, you know, make that a term of your witness, that's fine. But where we are, there are many of us who value the ability to own slaves. We don't really agree that it's against the religious witness. It never has been. And they're slow to accept that. The story in England is really interesting because obviously the Society of Friends, the, you know, the, the largest number are in London. And that's where in some ways the power of the Society of Friends lies in the London Yearly Meeting some very, very wealthy Quakers. And they basically take the position of, hey, great, good for you. <laughs> right. We're really pleased that you've decided to, you know, make slaveholding not part of the, you know, religious. There, there's hardly any slaveholding in England, right? So it's very right. easy to favor something that has no real cost to you. Um, this also involves giving up slave trading. Um, there were some Quaker merchants who had been involved in the slave trade, but for the most part, not terribly important. And it was easy for them not to, you know, to, to uh, withdraw themselves from it. Quakers in England start getting nervous when American Quakers say, great, well, I'm glad you agree with us. Will you please go visit your friends in Parliament and tell them that they should abolish the slave trade? And the very wealthy and sometimes politically connected Quakers say, there's no way we're going to do that. Right. We're not going to, you know, we're not going to draw attention to ourselves. We're not going to court controversy by trying to um, have the powers that be legislate against uh, an institution that's fundamental to the empire. So there's a big jump from witness within the society of friends to carrying the witness outside of the society of friends. And, you know, if there's one name to know from this history, it's Anthony Benazette, who 
Um, it really is in some ways the progenitor of the notion of the activist publicist who has a political cause that he is going to push through uh, pamphlets, publications, books that he is going to study sends all over the North American colonies, all over England. And in some ways, what he writes becomes the template for the vast majority of anti-slavery publications that appear, you know, for a two-decade period. I mean, it really is, he is, he really is that influential. And one of the things that he does is he essentially tries to, he takes the Quaker witness and projects it outwards and says that for reasons that we can talk about, this is, you know, anti-slavery is not just for Quakers, that the moral and religious witness should apply to the broader society as a whole. So, so here you have another filter where I guess this movement could have stagnated or died out. And, and I guess you're saying some of the resistance that they faced was among people who owned slaves themselves, who really didn't want to hear this message. And then you have other people who might be sympathetic on some level, but are indifferent to some degree to, to it in the way that maybe we can understand that people today see lots of terrible things happening. We hear about awful things happening on the news that doesn't necessarily prompt us to take action and decide that this is how we're going to spend our time and our political exactly. capital. Exactly. And so, yeah, how how is it that um, these barriers that I guess in the past hadn't been overcome by previous people who had been against slavery personally or in small groups, um, yeah, but what do you think was distinctive about this situation that allowed it to gain momentum? So um, this is where the American Revolution really matters. And... It's a very complicated subject. I'm going to try to make it as simple as possible. Um, The first thing to say, and in some ways maybe the most important thing to say for the questions we've just been talking about, is that when North American colonists start presenting their opposition to parliamentary, you know, from new initiatives from parliament, new, new laws, new rules, Stamp Act, Sugar Act, enforcement, of cutting down on smuggling, all of that, they find it useful to invoke their natural rights. And they do that because they learn quickly that invoking British rights is a way of, has the effect, in fact, of saying, right, British rights, which means <laughs> parliament is sovereign. Subject to the, yeah. <laughs> so if you want British rights, this is exactly what you've got. Parliament sets the, um, you know, governs, um, is sovereign, in, in not only um, in Britain, but in the empire. One thing that might be worth adding is that, yeah, I think in this era, this idea of like, of the rights of an Englishman was gaining greater and greater currency, I suppose, as Britain itself was becoming more of a constitutional uh, monarchy. More, more parliament was gaining more sovereignty, and I suppose so. So within England, the idea, uh, this idea of like of, of like the rights of an Englishman legally uh, would have would have passed muster potentially, but uh, but in the colonies, it was more problematic. Yeah, I mean, freedom in a you know to put it very crudely, in an 18th century political sense, the Constitution is about the conjoined sovereignty of king and parliament, um, and the power of parliament which is obviously a legacy of the Glorious Revolution and is regarded essentially as constitutionally not only sound but sacrosanct, you have American colonies essentially challenging uh, the principle of parliamentary sovereignty. And that is uh, something that is very confusing um, to British observers. And as a consequence, American colonists who don't like what Parliament does, begin to talk about the question of representation because they say Parliament can't 
be sovereign if we're not represented, and there are whole sets of arguments around that. But there are also arguments about rights that precede parliamentary rule, rights that are natural, that are inalienable. And those are obviously arguments made to try to justify political positions that are having a hard time winning favor on the other side of the Atlantic. And there are Quaker entrepreneurs, and Anthony Benazette in particular, who hear this political back and forth and say, hey, the polemicists are starting to talk about natural rights. Well, if we're going to talk about natural rights, how about the natural rights of these people, right? So it's a kind of opportunism by Quakers who see in the political controversies that lead to the American Revolution an opportunity to take an issue that they have been discussing among themselves and find a wider audience for it. Yeah. Now, there are other things that are going on, too. I mean, there's also a, um, a real change in the third quarter of the 18th century around notions of the a kind of a revived notion that slavery is unnatural. It is only conventional. It is only convenient. It's only expedient. You know, Montesquieu's spirit of the law, as I've come to realize, is just so crucial for a lot of anti-slavery thought in the third quarter of the 18th century that's not Quaker, uh, that really challenges the, the basically the legal foundations of slavery and narrows the grounds to one of, you know, basically, let's just admit it. We hold slaves because it helps makes make money. them wealthy. And, you know, and it, it, it's good for everybody but the slaves, right? And so there's a whole set of other arguments that are starting to run in the third quarter of the 18th century. But it's, it's this Quaker uh, deployment of natural rights discourse that's being used for other purposes that carries the anti-slavery message out into a wider arena and in a way that becomes difficult to ignore. So, so I guess here we have another possible explanation for what was distinctive about this time and place. One is that philosophers, political philosophers, uh, this, this whole society had been kind of incubating this idea of individual rights over time, or this idea of natural rights that probably would have felt quite foreign, perhaps, uh, you know, in, in, in ancient Rome. And so there was this idea on the shelf that people could reach for that uh, might help to undermine the notion of slavery. And then I guess you also happen to have this fortunate political situation where the American colonists really wanted to talk about natural rights and embrace natural rights, perhaps not realizing that the logical conclusion would be that a huge part of their <laughs> social order ought to be, ought to be overturned on, on that basis. But then we could ask, it was it inevitable that people would come up with the notion of natural rights and uh, you know, individual rights? And, and like, why would that be inevitable? What, is it a result of religious views or just the result of people spending more time thinking about these issues? Uh, so, do you want to comment on any of that? Yeah, so this is where we get into the crux of the matter about inevitability and contingency. Because the notion of natural rights have been around for a while. It is not a, a new creature of the 18th century. It had not been thought to be extended by European thinkers to enslaved Africans in the Americas. Now, again, I want to say, enslaved Africans in the Americas, the millions of men, women, and children held in bondage, if it had been possible to take a poll, I'm sure they would have said some version of what is being done to me is a violation of my natural rights or my God-given rights. 
um, or my sacred rights or a violation of, you know, of what the ancestors uh, bequeathed to us or my rights as a member of the, uh, as a subject of the King of Congo, any number of reasons, right? So natural rights as a ideology was there. You're right. It was kind of on the shelf in this sense. And it's because natural rights does not lead naturally into anti-slavery thought and action that I'm skeptical of notions that in the end, at some point, some way, natural rights would have led to anti-slavery movements. For hundreds of years, it had not done so. And you can even go back further because, as I was saying before, late Roman thought um, and early medieval legal thought regarded slavery as against nature, as against man's nature. So, you know, again, the moral insight, the legal insight is not in itself particularly new in the late 18th century. It's the uses to which it is getting put. So, and, and the uses are importantly political uses that are acquiring great significance in a new way. So I, I really think that it's not so much natural rights or the, the idea of natural rights or natural rights ideology as the new ways to which those ideas are being mobilized in this period that's really crucial for our subject. Yeah. Yeah, just as an aside, I, I thread through some of your work is, is pointing out that you can have highfalutin moral philosophy ideas like natural rights um, and not apply them and not actually act on them. That is extremely common, really typical. And we see that in our current age, that we have lots of ideas that might imply that we should act differently than we do, either individually or as a society. But if it's costly and difficult, then people can live with the inconsistency between their ideals and their actions for uh, centuries, uh, potentially. And if you were saying natural rights, people could have thought of that many uh, centuries earlier. And yet, for some reason, it only took off as a, as a notion uh, applied to an enslaved people at at this time. Yeah, to, to make this clear, do you want to give any examples from the kind of the, the present day of like somewhat analogous cases? Yeah, I think about this all the time. And honestly, Rob, a lot of my work on this subject really begins from reflecting on our moral experience in kind of everyday life. You know, I grew up at a time in the United States in the immediate aftermath of the civil rights movement where there was a lot of discussion about what will it take to get another movement, you know, going to sort of push the next level of equality. And I've always thought that there can be too easy a linkage between, well, if you just get people to think the right way, then they'll do the right thing. And you can see that at the political level, but you also see it at the individual level, you know, just coming into my office in New York City today, I walked by homeless people on the street. It's cold, lying on warm grates. This is true for most days in the winter in New York. I see people on the streets, you know, struggling in this way. And we walk by them, or I walk by them. I think most New Yorkers walk by them, often with, uh, sometimes with the thought of, that's really awful. That's really sad. It shouldn't be this way. Maybe I should do something. But then I'm late for work. Um, my child is calling me. You know, I'm thinking about what I'm going to have for lunch today. And then we go back to sleep at the end of the day and we wake up and do the same thing. 
And so I, I think there's really a great distance between our moral intuitions and even our moral commitments and then our moral actions. And I really, I, I think that is something that in the writing about, in the thinking about anti-slavery, there had been, and sometimes still is, a too easy equation of, well, once people saw the problem, once they realized the humanity of Africans, once they understood the cruelty of slavery, then of course they would organize and do something about it. And not only did it not happen that way, but it almost never happens that way. And so when the other thing happens, when there is a movement of some kind, when there's a commitment, when there's a, a collective effort, that's the thing that we should regard as strange and try to make sense of, rather than the routine forms of man's inhumanity to man, which, which unfortunately is all too typical, as we know. Yeah. At any point in time, there's so many awful things in the world that we could potentially dedicate ourselves to. And of course, most people also have relationships and they have children and they have to survive themselves. They only have so much slack capacity that it's almost, that we almost have to tune out most of the terrible things in the world or it would just be completely unmanageable. And that's to some degree true for us today. And it was true for people in the past as well. And I guess the society as a whole only has so much bandwidth to consider various different public policy issues, various different awful things. And so most stuff, just most of the time, is mostly getting neglected. And so just for that kind of base rate reason alone, it is kind of, it's the exceptional case where you get some, some massive moral and um, public policy revolution. That's, that's exactly right. The routine, the everyday, is where, you know, there are all kinds of conventions that on careful reflection really make us ask why do we do that? Why do we believe that? Why do we accept that? Let me give you a, a, another example um, that I often use in class um, from our own time, which I think uh, crystallizes something about how this works. It's not difficult at all to see the moral and ethical problems with eating meat. And there is a great number of vegetarians, vegans even, who some for health reasons, but some because they really don't like the thought of eating animals unnecessarily, right? Someone like me, who eats a lot of meat, I am wholly aware of all of the ethical, really indefensible grounds for consuming meat as much as I do. And yet I do it anyways. Because Is it because I'm not, you know, alert? Is it because I'm um, it's it's conventional. <laughs> I like the taste. I'm weak. Lots of people do it. There are all kinds of, you know, things around me that justify the choice, right? It's not hard to imagine 20, 50, 200 years from now when the variety of food, food science options are so vast and the problems of raising animals to eat is so difficult that people will look back on our time and say, what was wrong with these people? I mean, they were just eating meat all the time and they didn't have to. They must yeah. not have understood what they were doing. No, we know exactly what we're doing. We know exactly what we're doing. And that's, that's how humans are <laughs> to some extent exactly. now, and now and in the past. Okay, let's turn back then to this, this time period when yeah. it turned out that there was a moral revolution, that, that, it, yes. that it did pick up steam, did gain, gain a yes. lot of, of, of adherence. And I guess you're saying Benazet was a particularly unimportant character. Yeah, I mean, the, the, it's Quaker publicists and polemicists who really start pushing the 
incoherence between the natural rights discourse and the commitment to slaveholding. And they're very creative and very persistent about drawing leading political figures, leading spokesmen of the colonial cause to think about the issue. There's a kind of a self-awareness that begins to develop in the political community in the North American colonies where they kind of hear how the words sound in their own ears and they recognize that this is an unpleasant contradiction. And they've got various ways of excusing it, some of which are racial, some of which are practical, some of which are denial, evasion, um, the projection of guilt in other places. But there's a kind of a way that it becomes a sort of a feature of the broader public consciousness in the decade before the Declaration of Independence. And it especially becomes uh, part of the public consciousness because polemicists on the other side of the Atlantic who think the American rebels are full of it make the point that, say, listen, you guys aren't, you don't, guys don't actually believe in natural rights. If you believed in natural rights, you wouldn't be slaveholders. And again, from England, it's very easy to say because there's basically no slaveholding of any significance in England itself. It's very much in the way that British writers and politicians think about it. It's very much of an American practice. So what begins to happen, just as Quakers are saying, you should give a second thought to the political discourse that you're pushing because of the commitment to slavery here. And maybe independence, political independence should also mean liberty for enslaved Africans. You've got folks on the other side of the Atlantic saying, you don't deserve the liberty that you're petitioning for because you're hypocrites. You're not actually committed to freedom. You're not actually committed to natural rights. You're just trying to get out of paying your taxes. You don't want to actually listen to and obey parliament. You're trying to overthrow the constitutional order. And so what starts to happen in the years before the Declaration of Independence is a attribution of guilt by British polemicists saying to North American colonists, I don't want to hear your liberty talk from a bunch of slaveholders. And a political elite in North America that starts saying, in almost kind of a schoolyard way, well, there wouldn't be slaves here if British slave ships didn't bring them here. And so what starts to happen is this use of the issue of slavery as a way to say something. To criticize your political opponent. Exactly. Exactly. I see. It's, that's very interesting. So I guess the, the issue gets polarized, but polarized in such a convenient way that both sides benefit from saying that slavery is bad in some way, or they're both throwing it back and forth. Uh, it's insisting that the other is a fault for this thing that's, for, for this atrocity, basically. Exactly. In so doing, reinforcing the idea that, it, that, that that is wrong. There's one reason that you think that this wasn't inevitable is that this does just seem like a slightly happy coincidence. The, the it had never be been so done before. The, the institution of slavery had never been used this way before. It had never become a kind of an arrow in the quiver of political debate. And obviously it draws on an old notion that there is something morally um, reprehensible about slaveholding and slave trading. Uh, the tendency, though, had been to think of that as being, at least in the Atlantic world, as the way it had evolved, 
kind of how the world worked. And what starts to happen because of this political dispute is that on both sides of the Atlantic, you have propagandists saying, no, it's actually your fault. It's not just how the world works. This wouldn't happen if you didn't own slaves. This wouldn't happen if you weren't slave traders, right? And so by creating it, by redescribing slavery as the fault of particular groups, that, there is, that this is something that is blameworthy, it opens up the possibility. Those two things. First of all, it establishes the fact that actually it's not just the way the world works, that there are actually people, it's, it's, it's the product of human choice. And secondly, that if it's blameworthy to be committed to slavery, it must also say something good about you if you're opposed to slavery, right? And so a kind of a politics of anti-slavery emerges out of this contratemps between who's more at fault. And in figuring out who the bad guys are, there's also an effort to figure out who the good guys are. Now, of course, neither side of this political debate has any commitments to anti-slavery at all. Really? When they're making these arguments, they're not saying that the slave trade should stop or that slavery should be abolished. What they're saying is that this, this practice is somebody else's problem. But what I they've see. also done... Yeah, go ahead, Rob. So they weren't actually against it per se, or they didn't no. have some deep moral conviction. No, no. no, they were just throwing mud. Is that it? No, absolutely. No, this has had nothing to do with being in favor of emancipation or abolition or being concerned about black people or any of those things. What it was about was trying to uh, reveal, using slavery as a way of revealing a character flaw in your political opponents. I That's see. how it begins. But I guess this did, I suppose, inadvertently from their point of view, create a uh, whole lot of people who did morally oppose slavery, right? Because they were hearing these arguments um, and then actually interpreting them naturally and correctly. Well, so one of the things that happens, of course, is that using the issue this way draws attention to the institution of slavery. People start thinking about it and sort of like, well, why do we justify this? What are the grounds for it? You know, maybe this, yeah. so there's a kind of a, a secondary set of discussions that take place that are specifically about slavery that are enabled, inspired by these political arguments. So, you know, scholars have long understood that it's in the 1770s that there's a kind of anti-slavery discourse that's emerging and it's emerging at this moment precisely because of the political importance that it acquires. But I, the thing that I also think is just so important is that when you position something as a sign of... of depravity? Uh, of depra- Thank you. Of depravity, yes. To oppose it is to say something about your virtue, right? And so what starts to happen is a kind of a positioning of, especially first on the American side, when we declare independence, we are also going to be setting slavery on course for extinction. And they actually have, they, they either don't mean it or don't realize they don't mean it, or there are some people who mean it kind of, but it becomes something really useful to say rhetorically in the fight against Britain. And the British, on the other hand, at least on the, on the British side, it happens later there, but ultimately what starts to happen is that the American commitment to slaveholding is proof positive that Britain is different and therefore has a right to rule. I see. So, so uh, they mean that Britain is different because we don't have slavery within Great Britain. We don't no, have slavery I see. Here. So we're not like exactly. these uh, I guess we're not like awful those. country folk from the, from the sticks. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. I guess, yeah, when I was prepping for the interview, I, 
one thing that seemed distinctive about the setup here um, that could have contributed is that you've got the imperial centre in England and Scotland and Wales, and I guess Ireland to some extent, where slavery is not permitted. And I think there would have been mass opposition to the introduction of slavery. Not, not so sure. Well, it's, it's not so much that it's not permitted. It's that it's... <laughs> it actually, okay, well, it's, it's, actually, it's actually literally not permitted in this sense. Okay. It's, it's not Unlawful. outlawed. It's yeah. just that it's not lawful either. Um, yeah. And so there's this, this really interesting sort of legal twilight that slavery exists in, you know, where because these are British colonists, they come back to England, they come back to Scotland with slaves in tow. And there's nobody that says that they can't do that. There's also no law that says that they can do that. Right, and so the, the status of legal cases, right? Where... This, right. So, so this this is the importance of some people will have heard of the Somerset case of 1772. We're just having the uh, 250th year anniversary of that this year, so there's been some discussion, um, a new focus on it among scholars, and it really is an important moment because it's a decision that essentially involves a, the question of whether a what powers do slaveholders in England have over their slaves in a society where there's no slave law? And the judgment is that slaveholders, whatever their powers are, they are not allowed to ship slaves out of the country. Now, if you think about it, if you don't have the power to dispose of an enslaved man and woman the way you want, they can run away. There's no way to, to recover them. There's no fugitive slave law. There's nothing that provides the infrastructure to support slaves. And so it's, it's a judgment that was taken as a sign that, that English common law did not recognize slavery and would not enforce the rights of slaveholders. Right. And this happened just in the moment where the existence, pervasiveness of slaveholdering in North America had become really important. So, yeah, so you've got in Scotland and England and Ireland, a world in which slaveholding in Wales is, is, is not you know, there are no slave laws, there's no fugitive slave laws. And then on the other side of the Atlantic, slavery is literally everywhere. And so that contrast becomes a, in some ways, a, a way of defining national character with Americans being a different nation, even before they're independent, in part because they're slaveholders. I see. So yes, yeah, so, so did that facilitate the growth of this attitude, I guess, that you had this imperial center that didn't, uh, where people weren't exposed to slavery personally as they're brought up. So then when they hear about it from these other places, and especially when they have a political axe to grind to criticize them, it's yep. so natural for them to reach us like, well, we would never allow Abs this kind exactly. of treatment. That, that is, it's, it's abhorrent, and so it can gain momentum. But it's very easy to oppose something that doesn't involve you. Yeah. <laughs> or, or anybody that you know, right? Right. Yeah, and that's why. And that's why. I guess it's it's an auspicious setup for the for the for the movement because they could potentially get always and also and not just any people, but the people at the center of political power within this empire. Exactly. So convenient. Exactly. Yeah. Another explanation that can speak to the inevitability or contingency of it is well, one explanation for it taking off might be that there were individual people who were just incredible firebrands, incredible communicators who you know helped to light the spark that 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 spread to other people. Uh, it does seem like sometimes you do just get campaigners who manage, sent occasionally a single person who really managed to bring an issue into the limelight where otherwise that might have languished for a while. Uh, yeah, it's a, um, you know, I spent more time than I'd care to admit thinking about this subject. And one of the very hardest parts was trying to decide how to deal 
with the heroes of traditional accounts because, you know, names that will be familiar to many listeners that were familiar to many generations of readers of, of British history, Thomas Clarkson, William Wilberforce, the Clapham sect, for the longest time, they were not just the first movers, the progenitors, but also heroes. And they were kind of stood in this special place of having revealed and then mobilized and then led and then persisted in seeing the cause brought to its successful conclusion. And so when I first started working on this subject many, many years ago, I was determined not to tell that story. And not only because it's a kind of a complacent story that by extension becomes a story of, of national greatness and as a kind of a apology and even justification for empire, but also because I was resistant to the notion that individuals matter in the ways that those kinds of accounts tend to suggest. And if you think about the way people talk about movements today, there's a, there's a real tension between do we celebrate the person who's the spokesman at the head, um, or is it the community of leaders that support the lone spokesman? This is especially important in the history of the American Civil Rights Movement. Or is it the rank and file? Is it the people? Is, the, is it the foot soldiers? Um, is it all of the men and women, and especially women who do all this hidden work to make a movement go? And what happens when we focus on leaders and don't pay attention to everyone else who is pushing a cause? So all of these things are, you know, make writing about the beginning of a movement very complicated. And, and there are a number of scholars who, who did this before I started to work on the subject who really emphasized the popular dimensions of anti-slavery, that it was the, a, a kind of a public will, that was a kind of a upswell of opinion that the leaders were in some ways just kind of catching up to, and that if we really want to understand the movement, we under, need to understand its broad public embrace rather than its figureheads. Um, I guess this is a long answer to the question, Rob, because I, I, I really... Um, keep saying this is the crux of the matter, that's the crux of the matter. But I do, this is in some ways where the rubber hits the road between an issue that's become politically important and a movement that becomes politically powerful. And in this particular instance, I really came around to the view that you can't just talk about it as a popular movement in which the leaders, the progenitors, are just a kind of uh, the surface of what is a great upswell of opinion. To put it crudely, in this instance, movements start somewhere, and they start with particular actors doing particular things. And so I have ended up, in the work that I did on this subject many years ago, going back to the story of some of those key individuals to try to understand the position they took as founders of a movement for which there really was not much precedent. And so, you know, I went back to people like Thomas Clarkson, to William Wilberforce, uh, to Hannah Moore, uh, to some of the elite Anglican evangelicals gathered in later years at Clapham, 
um, less known but really important figures like James Ramsey or an early activist, Granville Sharp. The movement comes to fruition in the late 1780s because of the choices that those individuals made, and also because of choices that the collectivity of English Quakers made. And, and maybe we'll get into this a little bit. The challenge, if you want to understand how social movements begin, is to try to figure out what moves the first movers. And my conviction, at least in this case, after spending many, many years uh, researching and writing and thinking about these folks, is that you need to understand them in the round, not just as abolitionists, but as people with histories, emotions, personalities, and commitments, convictions, values that are not about slavery, but that very much inform the choices they make around slavery. Um, so there's a way that the, 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 my thinking about this increasingly migrates towards the biographical, but not with the intention of celebrating heroes, but trying to almost diagnose the peculiar features of personalities who do peculiar things. Yeah. So it, it sounds like you're, you're leaning towards the view that there were individuals who yeah. mattered, that if, you know, I guess if you know, half a dozen people happened to walk in front of a bus, then maybe the, maybe the movement could have lost momentum. Yeah, how can what I mean? It's just it seems really hard to tell. This is like a very difficult part of kind of factual history because I suppose yeah, one view is just that you look at this individual who seems to have been a real initiator of things, and you know before they took action, there were far fewer people involved. Afterwards, there's, there's there's tons. The other perspective would be well, there were broad social trends, and if it hadn't been, then someone else would have filled that niche within society that they would have uh, been the person who spoke up instead. How, so how listen, can one tell? Yeah, <laughs> I think I think the politics of the American Revolution put the question of slavery on the political agenda in a way that was lasting. I don't think it was possible to use the cliche to put the genie back in the bottle after the way the, the issue of slavery gets batted around because of the politics. So, but it could have worked out a variety of different ways. It did not have to necessarily lead to a, a push to end the British slave trade uh, beginning in the 1780s. But I do think and certainly the success of that effort would not be guaranteed by any means. But I don't think it was possible after the American Revolution to treat the institution of slavery as a kind of feature of the world that, as a moral issue, was no one's responsibility. I see. Yeah, so I guess who, who does seem most decisive and or like as an individual, uh, if anyone, and, and like, why, why would you think of them as being particularly uh, important? Anybody listening to this, uh, <laughs> this discussion uh, who knows the subject is going to roll their eyes when they hear what I have to say. <laughs> um, but I don't think there's any way that you cannot come back uh, to Thomas Clarkson. Okay. Um, and the reason why I say that is because he is really the first person who thinks that there should be a national public movement against the British slave trade. And he's so committed to that purpose that it becomes basically the sole work of his life until it's achieved in 1807. And there's no other person 
who has the same level of vision or same level of commitment to the purpose. So that's the reason why I would, I would identify Clarkson. I mean, I, I, there are very important moments, decisions made by the Quakers immediately after the American Revolution in Britain, which are consequential. Uh, there are some really formative anti-slavery publications by a guy named James Ramsey uh, that shape the debate in ways that are lasting. But as far as the movement goes, you know, I, I just think that Thomas Clarkson's really essential to what ends up emerging. It sounds like, for, yeah, from for using the language that the genie couldn't be put back in the bottle, it sounds like you think that maybe, you know, a, a very difficult filter to pass that was passed by that point was that multiple different very influential groups in society had, had found for some decades that it was in, to their benefit to say that slavery was awful and that the other guys are at fault and that that really had changed attitudes more, more broadly, that the, the promulgation of that message by powerful people for so long. It's very hard to document, but in the immediate aftermath of, American, of the American War for Independence, there is a brief... Uh, but profound couple of years where a reflection on what went wrong is, 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 is just circulating among the British elite. Um, and there is a sense that the loss of North America says that in one way or another, as pollsters say today, the empire was on the wrong track, right? That there was just a kind of a, um, it was a um, indication that there were either in terms of governance or in terms of orientation or in terms of execution, that the overseas colonies were vulnerable. And some of those interpreted that as we need to look at this question of the slave trade um, and of slavery in the British West Indies. That was not the majority opinion by any means, but it kind of created a space for folks who already had reservations to... um, you know, to pose questions that had not really been posed before. Yeah. Let's talk about that, the, the later stages of the anti-slavery uh, movement now. I guess to, to give people some signposts, you were saying that there was this process, I guess, from the uh, from 1780 through to uh, 1806, where the issue was abolishing, or there was this growing public policy like movement towards abolishing the Atlantic slave trade. And then it was about another 30 years after that until they got rid of slavery itself in the in the colonies which is uh a slightly funny thing that you would say it's this is terrible we can't allow this but then we're going to continue doing there's, it for quite some time there's 50 years between the beginning of the anti-slavery movement and the the ban on slave holding in the right. british empire 50 years is a long time i mean think about 50 years from now right or I mean, it's, 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 like that's a that's that's more than a lifetime for most of the folks who were involved. Am I right to think that at this later stage, the main impediment that these campaigners would have been running up against is just the lobbying power of this enormous industry, that there were financial political interests that did not want to be told that they have to shut down their business and lose most of their wealth. Yeah, the pro-slavery interest was very powerful in Parliament, particularly after slave trade abolition in 1807, in the 18-teens, 1820s, they did a very good job of making sure they had the right friends, especially in the Tory governments that dominated in the 1820s. Um, 
they, when there was reform regulation that was proposed, they drew up the regulations to the extent that they could. You know, it's the kind of the... It was very modern somehow. 19th century version of industries writing the rules that will govern their operations. There are some things that they had to give in on. But yeah, as political actors, they were exceptionally, exceptionally skillful. But they also benefited from a more general value among the British elite, which is the sanctity of private property. It's very easy to underestimate the importance of the problem of ownership. Slaveholding is abhorrent. You know, we don't have to kind of go into the sort of ways that the whole idea of owning another person, you know, at any time period, just it's, 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 it's hard to fit with. Yeah. But from a legal point of view, you know, from the standpoint of the slaveholders, that's real money that's walking around. They spent a lot of, you know, it's a lot of capital tied up in the people that they owned. And, and I've said this sometimes in class, not only to often to sort of grimaces from students, but you know, emancipation to slaveholders is confiscation. It's taking other people's stuff, right? And so there's a more general question about if we're talking about freeing the slaves, what does that mean to other forms of property? You know, not only in the colonies, but at home, right? So there's a kind of a sympathy among certain quarters of the elite of, well, yeah, slavery is horrible, but I, do we really want to get into the practice of just expropriating, you know, large inventories of human beings? I guess they wouldn't have called it class consciousness then, but it sounds like there was maybe among elites who had lots of wealth, uh, seeing other elites being losing it all makes, might have made them nervous. And this is why, and this is why when emancipation does come in 1833, it's with the massive buyout of slaveholders, both resident in the West Indies and resident in Britain, because the preservation of the principle of property, right, runs right through emancipation. The right to purchase um, and hold property is withdrawn, but the capital sunk in it is recognized and paid for. So you've just been laying out all of these reasons why it was extremely, it sounds like they were really up against an extremely difficult task here, trying to, like, even at this late stage, even, even after there was stage. mass recognition uh, that yep. this was wrong and people had been saying it was wrong for quite some time. Yeah. Um, how did they get lucky or what, what, what amazing decisions did they make to make it happen? <laughs> oh, boy. So complicated, Rob. I mean, I, I um, part of it, in some ways, the most important part of the story, both for slave trade abolition and for emancipation are shifts in the political climate that actually have nothing to do with the issue of slavery. You know, in 1806, uh, shortly after William Pitt dies, the ministry that's put together contains a number of politicians, uh, Grenville, Charles James Fox, others who have been long in favor of slave trade abolition. Um, and they are... For moral know, reasons or... Well, for reasons? moral reasons, for political yeah. reasons, okay, yeah. um, but for, you know, some economic reasons that we could discuss. Um, but, you know, that's not the reason why they come into office. But when they come into office, it's one of the few things that they're able to get done together. But that, that's a ministry that only lasts for a year. 
something similar happens in the 18, um, in the early 1830s, where, you know, after the reforms that, you know, considerably widen the franchise and bring in new members of parliament in 1832, the political balance is shifted away from, you know, the, the interests, the politicians who had protected the slaveholders for, you know, a quarter century. So again, you know, the, the Reform Act of 1832, its purpose was not to promote, enable emancipation, but that new parliament was far more open to the uh, lobbying of abolitionists than earlier parliaments had been. So, you know, one thing that's, that's true is that from 1787 down to 1838, you know, for nearly 50 years, there is an anti-slavery lobby at work in Britain. It's a constant feature of British political life. They don't succeed for large parts of those years, but they're always there. And there's always a public which is supportive of anti-slavery agendas. But whether they're able to succeed politically has a lot to do with the state of play in politics and the relative balance of power of different political factions that rise and fall has very almost nothing to do with the issue of slavery. But their fortunes have profound influences on what happens with, to the institution of slavery. The, the fact that this movement kept persisting at it, despite the fact that they weren't having that much success to start with, and they were up against a very early, a, lot, a lot of opposition, I guess that makes it seem feel less contingent at this point, because the sense is that, well, they're just going to keep trying until the stars happen to align and they're able to, 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 to get their way. Yeah, I think that's right. And, and, and this is why I think the moment of the 1780s is so important. Because what gets established in the decade after the American Revolution is the belief, the view, the notion that standing in opposition to some aspect of the slave system is a sign of individual and collective virtue. That it says something good about you as a person, it says something good about you as a community, it says something good about you as a nation. And for most of the folks who take anti-slavery positions, it's deeply held, but it's also in some ways, costless, right? I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't, um, there's no, the barriers to entry are incredibly low, right? Because, because all of the, all of the impact, most of the impact, the impact that people think about is all overseas. Right. So I often think about, there's a lot of, you know, literature, especially in the 1980s, 1990s, that really emphasized just how, you know, all the petitioning, there's just extraordinary, hundreds of thousands of of people signing anti-slavery petitions in the 1790s in the first decade of the 19th century. You know, there's no issue around which the British public was more united than opposing the slave trade and later opposing slavery. Um, and it crossed class, you know, lines and all these kinds of things. The only thing that stood in the way, you know, was parliament in some ways. And we can talk about why that was the case. But and especially from an American point of view, that sounds extraordinary, where, you know, where anti-slavery was incredibly divisive. It led to a civil war, obviously. But when you stop and think about it, if you think about a canvasser walking around, I don't know, Nottingham with an anti-slavery petition saying, are you for slavery or are you against it? Well, yeah, I'll sign. I'm it's against easy it. Sell. That's easy, mm-hmm. right? It takes on that character in England. It takes on that character of a, of a moral Every stand. Every right person is against A this. moral stand that you can take that says that is, a, that is worthwhile that is unquestionably morally right and virtuous, 
but which has no real consequences in supporting. So it becomes a really important part of British national identity um, in these years. Yeah. I guess in as much as it was the Reform Act in the 1830s that gave the franchise to more people and, um, you know, reduced gerrymandering, got rid of rotten boroughs and, and so on, helped to make the UK more democratic in a sense, then that makes it feel a bit more inevitable because I suppose that was a long-term trend that continued, that would happen before, continued after, it happened in many other countries as well, this kind of incremental increase in the, in the franchise. As countries became more democratic or as powers distributed somewhat more broadly, I guess potentially as a result of the Industrial Revolution, maybe a contributing factor, would that have helped to undermine support for slavery more, more generally? Yeah, I think so. In Western Europe, I think that's true. Um, you know, the ultimate abolition of slavery in the British Empire is tied up, um, you know, in the revolutions of, you know, 1830 and 1848. I guess what I would say about this is that by the early 19th century, there's a politics of slavery that has been engaged, especially in the Anglo-American world, where the institution is controversial. It has to be defended. It is attacked on moral grounds, on political grounds, sometimes even on economic grounds, routinely. It is a matter, is a subject of politics in the first half of the 19th century, including democratic politics. And so I do think that it becomes a kind of a perennial, especially in Britain and the United States, um, that obviously, you know, its resolution takes many decades. But I do think that there's... um, the politics of slavery are going to lead to some kind of crisis in one way or the other um, in the two countries at some point in the middle decades of the 19th century or the late 19th century. You know, when I talk about contingency, Rob, I really mean what I think was unlikely, most unlikely, was the development of a movement in the first place. Once there is a movement, the chances of it concluding especially the kinds of movements that develop, the chances of it concluding with some sort of legislative attack on the slave trade or slavery obviously becomes far more likely because it has to be contested. Every generation is contesting it, Yeah. right? But again, you have to think back to what had come before. It had never been contested at all in this, mm. fe- in this form or fashion, right? The whole question of the future or the shape of slavery in the Americas was not a matter of debate or discussion among the political elite anywhere in Western Europe or in the Americas. So it's, it's, it's this moment of transition in the last quarter of the 18th century that I think is the real pivot point. Turning point, I see. Yeah. Now, once it's a constant political issue, it's likely that eventually uh, it will be undermined. Far more likely in any case. Likely. Yeah, at least much more likely. So, so one one whole theory that people might be, listeners might be familiar with that we haven't really talked about um, yet is people have this economic theory, I guess, of why it is that, uh, that that the abolition of slavery was going to happen sooner or later. And it's, I guess, connected to the idea that slavery in some way no longer made sense after the Industrial Revolution or that processes were set in motion by the Industrial Revolution that uh, would have ultimately led people to, to begin to, uh, to, to oppose it. Do you want to, I guess, first explain uh, what, what those, uh, explain better, better than me what, what those theories are? Yeah, so this is, the, this is the myth of inevitable human progress. 
Um, and it takes a variety of forms. One is the sort of the enlightenment naturally leads to, led to an enlightened, um, enlightened moral outlooks, or that economic development, the, its very logic would lead to the overthrow of slavery. And, you know, these are the kinds of subjects that historians earn their money debating with other historians. Yeah. And you get 12 of us in a room and you'll get 12 slightly different takes on this subject. The most famous statement of the economic grounds for both abolition in 1807 and British emancipation in 1833, of course, comes from Eric Williams's book, um, Capitalism and Slavery, which was published in 1944. And he describes both abolition and emancipation as driven by the logic of economic change and that abolitionists had, in many instances, economic motivations. And it is a set of arguments that, when written, directly challenged what at that point was a very idealistic notion that uh, abolition and emancipation were essentially the elaboration of British values and British commitments to liberty uh, and law and civilization, that there was a kind of a incipient abolitionism in British culture. Mm. Um, and Williams, bringing a much more cynical point of view, uh, said, no, this is an economic motivation um, from beginning to end. This doesn't get talked about enough, but Williams, when he wrote that in 1944, was drawing on a whole body of thought from the 19th century um, by Britain's competitors, especially France um, and Spain, that were quite sure that especially the abolition of the slave trade was some sort of British stratagem to throw all of the, the benefits of the plantation economies to, in the services of British capitalism. Now, the grounds on which they made that argument is very complicated. I'm not sure we want, need to get into all of that. But sure. those outside of Britain had been saying that there must have been economic interests at work in the 19th century, that this is not just a story of humanitarianism and idealism and religion and, um, and all those kinds of things. So Eric Williams was drawing on that tradition. And it's an argument that after 1944 uh, was largely ignored for many years and then contested, challenged intensively in the 1960s, 1970s, 1980s by historians, especially economic historians who, as we say today, ran the numbers um, and, you know, it challenged the empirical basis uh, for Williams's arguments. And, you know, it still remains a, a matter of controversy today. You know, most of us who work on the subject no longer accept the crudest version of Williams's formulation that slave trade abolition was a response to declining profits in the British West Indies. Nor is there as ready an acceptance that emancipation was a kind of a mercy killing of a dying economy. Most folks who, not all, but many economic historians who've really sort of studied this carefully have argued, somewhat counterfactually, that if the slave trade had not been abolished, British slavery would have thrived through the 19th century. And slavery in many parts of the British West Indies at the time of emancipation 
was still flourishing and could have continued to grow if emancipation had not occurred. So the argument has been challenged on the grounds that the prospects for economic growth, if the slave trade and slavery had remained in place, the prognosis was really, really good. And so abolition and emancipation from that point of view did not make economic sense. I see. So so one argument would be that slavery uh, disappeared because it was no longer profitable in some sense, or it was no longer an economically efficient institution from the perspective of slaveholders or of the society in which they're a part. And so that was what drove people to, to give up on it. And basically... Uh, I guess it, you think that when you run the numbers or people, other people have run the numbers, it just seems like that's not the case at all, that it was very profitable, would have continued to be profitable. It would have been to the military benefit of the British Empire if they'd continued doing this because they would have made money on and on. Yeah, I mean, I'm, uh, the military part of it, I'm less, I'm less sure about. But, but this is where one of the real challenges for this kind of subject, Rob, is it, it depends on who and what we're talking about. Because if you look at the British Empire as a whole, the economic argument for abolition and emancipation were not particularly strong. If you look at particular places in particular moments, you can see how there would be individual economic interests that might be a little bit like, you know, the Pennsylvanians or New Englanders of an early generation, which is to say they did not favor emancipation, but they were not as opposed to it as some others might be, right? right? Because there were some colonies, Barbados is a very good example, that had declined in profitability, that were not as um, where, especially after slave trade abolition, where slavery was, you know, had been really weakened. There are very important strategic reasons, not necessarily economic ones, but strategic reasons why abolition made sense in 1807. And the proportion of the elite who are committed to slavery by the 1820s, early 1830s, um, is declining. And there is a, a growing belief that free labor is morally superior and potentially, it's argued, economically superior. Now, Abolitionists try to make that argument. Slaveholders say, you have no idea what you're talking about. You try free labor here, and nothing is going to get done. And they turn out to be largely right. But there's a series of economic arguments that start getting made in the 18-teens, 1820s, early 1830s that are questioning the economic utility of slavery. But there is no known instance, at least one that I can think of, in the Americas where slaveholders decided that they were going to essentially liquidate slavery, abandon it because it was no longer economically profitable. Mm. Like that just right. doesn't happen. It never happens. Which, right? Yeah. So, so the whole <laughs> bit about the whole. economically profitable, like the yeah. people who are engaged in the business are quite sure it's economically profitable. So a bunch of folks who are, you know, living somewhere else saying, you know, this system has run its course. Well, that might be true to them, but it's not true to the folks who are actually invested in. And this is the reason why many of us take the art and that there's no reason absent abolition emancipation that the institution could not have run into the early 20th century. So let's set that argument aside. It, it, it doesn't make a ton of sense to me. I, I've got to, yeah, I've got to surprise that, uh, that, that, that people took it, took it seriously. Or maybe, maybe there's arguments that, that we're missing here. But I guess a different line of argument that 
feels more intuitive. And I think drives a lot of people's sense that there must have been an inevitability here is that it, like, isn't it an awful coincidence that the abolition movement and opposition to slavery took off at the same time and the same place as the industrial revolution was occurring? It seems like they, they happened yeah. kind of in tandem. Yeah. And that, and if there wasn't any causal connection between them, or they weren't both caused by some some common thing, by some common factor, then it's just, it's just a hell of a coincidence. It makes you wonder. Uh, what do you think of that? So I'm going to tell you right now that I don't think the last word has been written on this subject at all. Um, and I think it's time for another generation of scholars to come back and re-examine the linkages with the great increase in empirical information that we have about slavery in the early 19th century in the British Empire, um, and with the much more refined understanding that we have about the Industrial Revolution. Um, So I I, I think in many respects, the jury is still out on this subject. Williams had the view that slavery provided essentially the startup capital for the Industrial Revolution, and that the industries and captains of industry at the center of the new manufacturing economies then found it in their interest to turn around and destroy slavery because it no longer had served its purpose. And so there's a real kind of both economic explanation for of slavery's importance to the British economy and then the British economy turning around and jettisoning slavery when it no longer serves its purpose. Um, there is no question about the chronological um, about the synchronization between the two developments. Although I will point out that economic historians uh, debate among themselves exactly when the Industrial Revolution took place, yeah. when it began. And, Seems like you know, it was quite the, a gradual takeoff in a sense. It's phases of its growth, right? And so the whole notion of a kind of spectacular takeoff, which was such an important part of the literature when Williams wrote, is no longer the, you know, the general understanding among scholars who work on the subject today. So, so, so that story you just mentioned there has slavery causing the Industrial Revolution. And then I suppose the progression of the Industrial Revolution. And then the then Industrial Revolution slavery. turning around and causing the end of slavery. Yes. So it, something that's a little bit surprising about that is that, I mean, so slavery can't be necessary, sorry, sufficient for the Industrial Revolution because slavery was in almost all times and all places throughout history. Uh, and yet it's only kind of there that we saw this particular style of industrial revolution. So I suppose that that doesn't rule it. That doesn't rule it out being a necessary factor. But it's an it's an aspect of Williams's argument that has not aged terribly well. Mm. Williams did something really interesting with this subject, and it will sound familiar. Most of what he did is he connected, identified major bankers, uh, major industrialists, who also had major investments in the British West Indies, sometimes as plantation owners, sometimes as merchants dealing with plantations. Yeah. So he did what we you know, think of today as kind of uh, naming names, essentially, right? Connecting particular individuals who would become really important to the new manufacturing economies, to finance, uh, to insurance, to industry, and showing their ties to the plantation economies. And you know, that work continues apace when people study the sort of who held slaves at the time of emancipation in 1833. The problem is, is that it's not easy to segregate capital flows from one, you know, there's no way you can say that slavery alone, obviously, for the reasons that you just described, was alone sufficient for an industrial revolution. There are many places where there are significant slave 
profits related to the slave economy that did not industrialize in the way that Britain did. And the Netherlands is the most famous, um, you know, important case for thinking about a kind of a, a counterexample. But in some ways, it's not an argument that it's sufficient or even that it's necessary, but that this is what happens. Ah, <laughs> that okay. in this particular case... So it's case, less counterfactual history and more just a description right, of the mechanism. Partic- but, it, but in this particular case, when you look at the beginning of a banking sector, of a, of a private banking sector, essentially, when you look at the development of insurance, when you look at the manufacturing economy, ties to the plantation world, to the plantation complex, to the export of commodities to the plantation colonies, to the imports of commodities from the plantation colonies, you see a extensive relationship between them. And you can try to quantify them in, how, in, in sort of the question of small ratios, of large ratios. How, these are the sorts of things that economic historians, you know, will argue about from sunrise to sunset. But what yeah. we understand better now is that the British economy was closely tied to the overseas economy, an overseas economy that was organized around the plantation complex. Now, I, I think you, it would be wrong to say slavery caused the Industrial Revolution. Nobody would say that. Um, I think you know profits from it played a role for certain, but there's... There's no one single cause of the Industrial Revolution. The, the thing that's always seemed odd about that line of argument to me is that, I mean, uh, no doubt the Industrial Revolution required some level of saving and capital investment, but it seems like that could have been supported through whatever profitable industries existed, including other ones that would have existed in the absence of slavery and, di- and did exist, uh, even in the presence of slavery. And it's true that in as much as lots of GDP was being generated through enslavement, then of course that is going to end up being intertwined. But any, any profits could have served that role. Uh, and, yeah. Yeah. And this is what economic historians get into. And I'm not going to be able to give you the exact figures on this, but there are, but the, some of the argument goes that the margin of increase in trade was driven by the slave economy. And so the level of, you know, capital, which was swimming in the British economy in the middle decades of the 18th century because of slavery, made it more likely um, for both industrialization. Because when you talk about industrialization, you're talking about capital investment, but you're also increasing the scale of production, right? And the question of scale of production is closely related to the size of the markets you have to sell in. And those markets are in part about the success of the colonies that are overseas, since those are essentially, you know, closed markets, captive markets, not to mention the whatever you can do to sort of push those commodities, those manufactured goods into other overseas uh, markets. So, you know, I mean, it's a it's, it's such a complicated question. I, I just, you know, it would. The, the the truth lies somewhere between the Industrial Revolution was completely independent of the overseas slaving economy, and it was entirely dependent on it. Okay, let's talk about a, a different mechanism that would have had a degree of inevitability about it, which is that as the world has industrialized over the last 250 years, we see a kind of consistent shift in the values that people have. I suppose... Uh, well, there's one particular framing of this from the uh, World Values Survey folks who, uh, who <laughs> I'm not, I, I, have you seen this, this stuff before? No, I, no? I, I've oh, never okay. seen this. 
So, so basically, it's, it seems like as, as countries get richer and more educated, they tend to shift from values that are focused on survival uh, in, a, in a hard world towards um, valuing more self-expression. Uh, and they also tend to move from more traditional religious values to more secular modern values, the kind of uh, kind of values that you might have in Denmark or or Sweden, um, as opposed to you know uh, society 500 years ago. And it seems like there is this kind of general trend that you see across like many different places and, and times. And it makes you wonder, maybe there is something that is quite consistent about what changes about human psychology or what changes about human behavior you get when people are engaged in knowledge work or they're engaged in industrial work as opposed to agricultural work or when they have more time than before to inform themselves to consume media um, and so on. So this might be a story where you have you have the industrial revolution driving changes in the kinds of work that people do and the kinds of education that they can receive and the amount of time that they have and I guess also the economic slack that they have to express their values and that that might have driven people to over time decide that whatever benefit they might have been getting out of slavery, they um, on, on balance, they, they're against it because it violates their values too, too much. Uh, do, do you place any stock in this style of argument? Not at all. Wow, okay. <laughs> Go for um, it. <laughs> I, I, I think that is, um, I think it's demonstrably untrue. And I also think, well, let me put it this way. It might be true in some instances, but it's certainly not, I would not describe it as some universal uh, law of, values in human civilization. I mean, look, I mean, this is not my field or my subject, but as I understand it, you know, wealth, art, creativity, uh, Weimar Germany. Yeah. I mean, I, it's, you know, it's, 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 and I'm, I'm, people had, you know, I just, that's, uh, there are all kinds of counter examples. And I would also just say the wealthiest nations in Europe in the 18th century were deeply committed to slavery. Slavery has been a producer of wealth and slaveholding societies have produced artistic marvels in many instances. You know, I'm no expert on Roman civilization, but my suspicion is that there was no wealthier um, and increasingly more secular world with the kinds of cultural expression that you're talking about. Certainly there was no, and that was one of the largest slaveholding society that had probably existed in the world at that point. So I, I just think that's hopeful. I think I'd go even further and say it's wishful thinking. Wishful thinking, yeah. Um, I don't think there is a real tie. And I also think even more that it's tied to a notion, as far as I can tell, that wealth in one place, in one way or another, redounds to the wealth of others in other places. And I, I just don't, I just don't, I mean, it's, it's, I don't think that that's necessarily true. I mean, I think the other thing you might think about is like sort of the age of high imperialism um, in, you know, Britain, France, Germany, late 19th, early 20th century, where extraordinary, contra- you know, concentrations of wealth were dependent upon you know, the uh, oppression, the colonialism um, throughout sub-Saharan Africa, North Africa, South Asia. And, you know, I mean, the artistic production, the creativity of Belle Epoque, France, Edwardian England. I mean, I just, I, I, I just, I, I don't, there are too many examples of the ways in which wealth has been built on and then contributed 
to the uh, exploitation and immiseration of other people that I just, I have a hard time accepting that as a linkage. Generalization, yeah. So I guess one thing that's inconsistent with this is that obviously in, in, in history further back, the people who uh, engaged in the most human bondage were often the very wealthiest. Uh, so you might have thought, well, they would be the ones who would be most opposed to slavery, but it seems like like they weren't. And it's also true that in the modern world, uh, well, uh, rich countries often engage in, in all kinds of atrocities of, of their own. Um, and I, I guess I guess as you're pointing to colonialism in the 19th century, that, that as these countries got richer, they used that power to oppress people on an even grander scale than what had previously been possible rather than you know, <laughs> going to university and realizing that colonialism was wrong. That, was, <laughs> that wasn't the, the path that things took. Um, if you wanted to run this argument, and it's not something that I really believe in, but if you wanted to run this argument, you would make a case that it's the middling classes, it's the bourgeoisie, it's the, where the, um, the energy for these kinds of movements emerge. You know, I, I, I do think that there is a degree of class warfare is not quite the right word for it, but there is a fair amount of resentment of the kind of wealth and power that slaveholders enjoy because they own slaves. And most of the constituency at the broader level is for those who are wealthy enough to be engaged in politics, but not wealthy enough to own slaves. That's certainly true in the middle and northern United States by the early 19th century. Um, And I think it's sort of a lot of the rank and file of abolitionist and then emancipationist convictions um, in Britain. So if you wanted to run an argument that really emphasized economic development, I think it's too crude and I think it only goes so far. But I would, you could make an argument that the, the democratization of politics uh, brings in a group of folks who are less inclined or less sympathetic to the kinds of privileges that slaveholders under an ancien regime enjoy. Now, yeah. I don't think I don't think um, uh, democratic revolutions are inherently uh, hostile to slaveholding. Um, you know, the United States is essentially a slaveholding republic, but I, I do think that the way it works out in certain places, depending on the socioeconomic configurations, I do think that there's there. If you want to think about econo- long-term economic development, that would be the place that I would look for it. Okay. Yeah, I'll, I'll, we'll stick up a link to this um, yeah, Inglehart well, uh, World Civil World Culture Map uh, that I was somewhat uh, referring to for listeners who are interested in, in looking at that. I think I might have slightly led us astray by using the uh, self-expression values because it's like meant to wrap in all kinds of different uh, shifts in attitudes, I guess particularly from thinking that people should follow uh, cultural norms towards thinking that individuals should maybe be, be more free to do, to do what they want. But let me try approaching that. I'm representing here uh, arguments that listeners have sent in, by the way. Uh, sure, so uh, no I problem. Like they, they, these are the things that apparently have um, jumped to people's minds when they've read um, What We Are the Future. I guess looking at it a different way, I think that one, one popular model of human moral psychology is um, called moral foundations theory. And it's kind of that, that we have a specific list of evolved fundamental moral intuitions that are sometimes in conflict with one another and sometimes stronger and sometimes weaker. Kind of that, that the most common list um, that psychologists offer is that there's like, a, number one is a harm care. So it's sort of a utilitarian, don't want to hurt other people thing. Then there's fairness, cheating, which is sort of reciprocity. You've got the, uh, liberty versus oppression authority and subversion. Uh, fifth one is kind of loyalty and betrayal. And the sixth one is uh, sanctity degradation. So something uh, about spirituality. 
Now, idealism is just intended to be kind of a neutrally descriptive. It's almost like a personality test of saying, like, how strongly do yeah. you feel these different these different moral sure. intuitions? And on this one, it seems like as countries have gotten richer, they've there's been a trend in people's opinions where they tend to place more weight on the care, harm, and fairness uh, cheating moral intuitions, and somewhat less. Oh, and, and, and uh, also sometimes on the liberty uh, oppression axis, and somewhat less on authority, uh, a bit less on loyalty, and a, and a bit less on sanctity, degradation, spirituality, and so on. And if that if that general trend were true, then you might think that that um, it seems like concern about fairness and harm are the moral intuitions that are most going to push people towards abolitionism. And perhaps it's it's only the belief in authority and hierarchy that that kind of moral intuition that that could ever really cause people to think that. Um, that slavery could be acceptable. And so, yeah, if you, if you did have this trend towards people placing greater weight on those moral intuitions, then perhaps that would have over time caused people to, uh, to become less favorable towards slavery. Uh, do, do you have any reactions to that? Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking about that. I'm thinking mm. about that. Certainly a feature of anti-slavery thought and a common element in anti-slavery argument, especially in England, is... But what you've identified as the harm sort of axis. You know, there's a lot of propaganda, anti-slavery pamphlets that emphasize the cruelty, emphasize the barbarity, emphasize the physical violence, emphasize the suffering Hmm. as the reason to care and then the reason to act. And on on the fairness part, sometimes that expresses itself in the notion of human equality um, and therefore the importance of that equality means that the treatment, the grounds on which people are treated, that's, goes in some ways into the equality under law, right? And those are, those are elements that are in anti-slavery argument. But I would go back to the question in my mind is that are they prior or are they posterior consequences of anti-slavery movements? Yeah. Because these are not, as you say, these are in some ways are not new. The harm one is actually very interesting because in the 18th and early 19th century, in Anglo-American culture, there is a real turn against the most bloody of punishments, right? Capital punishment goes into behind closed doors. There's no more hanging trees. The whole sort of you know, drawing and quartering people, the most, you know, dramatic displays of, of torturing and destroying the human body. All of those things become uh, too squeamish for people over the course of the 18th and long 19th century. Um, and the turn against slavery is, is, is part of that. I, I, I agree with that. But I guess my question is, is the anti-slavery movement the product of that or a cause of it, right? Does it facilitate the growth of that culture of sensibility, or does it arise from it? Mm. And I think it's as much a contributor to that ethos as it is. I mean, to give you a very concrete example, the lash in the Royal Navy, yeah. right? I mean, it's, you know, it could be, could be whipped 70, 80 times, right? We think about whipping on the plantations as something that happens to slaves, but, you know, sailors could be whipped basically to the up to and sometimes to their death, and captains would be legitimate and have the right to do so. The turn against whipping in the Navy is in part a consequence against the turn against whipping in slavery. Right. Right? 
it's not that the things that you're describing don't occur. Um, it's that I think the causal sequence, we sometimes, I think the causal sequence is more complicated than that model would seem to suggest. Yeah. Let me just give you one other example just occurred to yeah. me. The whole idea of gender equality in the 19th century and women's rights comes directly out of the campaign against slavery, right? And so, so again, I think anti-slavery serves as a progenitor of new ideas of equality as much as it is a, a product of them. Yeah. And it would be interesting to think about, and here's a counterfactual for you, what does the movement for women's rights look like in the 19th century if the campaign against slavery had never existed? And I would argue that it's actually, that it's, it's, that there's, I think there would have been a movement, there would have been a movement towards greater equality, but it was certainly galvanized and learned a lot of lessons from the anti-slavery movement. Mm. So I guess, yeah, one model here, I guess, places the abolition movement at the beginning of these various liberation movements and then says maybe it set off a chain reaction to some extent. I do think that's that, part that of the story. People's, yeah. yeah. And, and, and I guess the other one is uh, saying that it's increasing education and wealth that are driving uh, these these things each each in turn. Um, I guess I, actually another objection that I had to this, at least about the inevitability, is that, and I, actually this, this is kind of consistent with the story where the, where the slavery thing is the prime mover, is that, yes, on this planet, with our common culture, this is the track that we got onto as we got richer. This is how people decided to use their wealth, or this is what became morally fashionable within elite culture and uh, and among the most powerful uh, countries. But it's not necess- it doesn't have to be the case that as people get richer, this is how they decide to use that slack. Um, you could have, I guess, as you're pointing out, it's like the, the Nazis, in a sense, were very rich, and they decided, oh, 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 as they became more powerful, they didn't decide to use it to, uh, for, to, for compassionate ends. Um, and I suppose, uh, yeah, also you've got the ancient Romans were richer than other surrounding societies, and they used it to, <laughs> to uh, operate coliseums and, uh, and all kinds of barbarities. So if there's a if there's a trend toward, from wealth towards compassion for all, uh, at least it, it, can't, it can't be so overwhelmingly powerful that we can't imagine a counterfactual world where things might have gone in a different direction. Yeah, I, and I I think um, so. There's the historical point, but then there's the um, some of the consequences of the historical point. I I think it can it's very easy to believe and comforting to believe that the course the world is on is of uh, improvement. And I, I think that, you know, with growing wealth, with growing technology, we will figure out new ways to solve problems. We'll address problems that have never even been recognized as problems because they seem to be beyond our capacity. I think those things are true. But I also think you're still dealing with human beings and human nature. And, you know, we as a species have the capacity for great kindness individually and collectively, but also extraordinary cruelty. Mm. And we find all kinds of ways and reasons to do that. And what makes it even more complicated is sometimes we are cruel in our kindness. And I, I'm thinking especially about what happens in the late 19th and early 20th century. The identity that Western Europe acquires as the part of the world that abolished slavery then becomes the alibi, maybe the, even the apology for colonizing the less developed world, mm. right? 
we're here to stamp out slavery in Africa, right? We're here to bring economic development. Oh, it just so happens to serve our economic interests as well, right? There's a whole sort of series of ways that slavery gets disguised in the 19th century, where the, you have functional slavery without legal slavery. And at the same time, there is a kind of a celebration of, see, we abolished it. There's no more slavery anymore, even though things that are almost indistinguishable are operating under the same cover. So I just think that there's a certain amount of vigilance <laughs> that we need against guarding, both guarding against our worst instincts as individuals and as societies, um, and a certain amount of humility, to me, about when we are sure of our moral purposes, where our blind spots lie. What is it that we are not noticing? What damage might we be doing in the service of improving things? And that's not to say that we should not be, I mean, obviously, but I, I, I just, um, one aspect of the record of the modern era is of great damage done in pursuit of worthy causes. And there's also extraordinarily worthy causes where things have, you know, where there is real progress, there is real change. Um, you know, one of the things I sometimes say in the class is that the fact of the matter is, is that on the subject of slavery, there is no question about human progress over the last 200 years. I mean, this is indisputable. There is no place on the planet right now where slavery is legal. Now, there are lots of places where slavery operates, but everybody who's doing it has to do it underground, mm. right? So this is, an un, this is an unqualified good. I mean, this is real progress. And yet at the same time, I can tell you that in the name of abolishing slavery, a whole lot of other stuff happened that brought new evils to the world. Yeah, this, this connects a, a lot with, uh, um, I guess, yeah, you, you won't have heard this, of course, but um, we, we have a discussion at the start of uh, my conversation with Bear Braumoller a couple of episodes back uh, that listeners might be interested in uh, going and checking out if they, if they haven't already, where we talk about the legacy of the Enlightenment and talk about how what a, what a mixed blessing it was or how while maybe it is good in the long run and, and brought about many positive effects it was an incredibly rocky road and also encouraged all kinds of uh, bad things in the in the meantime at least at least on a uh, expansive uh, understanding of what the enlightenment uh, was uh, and, and i think the, the alternative to some degree is, is slightly cherry picking the, the parts of it that you want to say are the enlightenment uh, and, and ignoring the parts that that, that you don't want to own i mean you know, we could play this with almost anything, and I think even posing the question, uh, <laughs> posing the questions, um, points out uh, absurdity may be too strong. But <laughs> rise of Christianity, mm. good or bad? Good or bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, Columbus's uh, crossing of the Atlantic, good or bad? Well, it yeah. kind of depends on who you ask and what you're interested in, right? I mean, I, I just, I, I don't think these things are resolvable in very simple moralistic terms of, you know, I mean, heck, you could have the same conversation with, you know, the Reformation, good or bad. bad. Yeah. My suspicion is that there are different answers to that, you know, in Canterbury than there are in Rome. The world is too complex and people are too diverse and their experiences are far too complicated and varied to, at least from a historian's point of view, to simplify things in the ways that those kinds of analyses require. 
Yeah, I think we actually slightly come down to uh, concluding that, well, everything in the modern world is directly or indirectly a result of the Enlightenment, more or less by this stage. So uh, so it almost sure. becomes impossible to ask, uh, or, or the question does slightly lose its meaning. In prepping for the interview, I was trying to think, yeah, like how, how would one know uh, to what extent? It, it's, it's a very difficult question. How would one tell uh, how contingent an event like this is? So one thing that occurred to me is that if, if we saw that on all conceptually related issues to abolitionism, we were also seeing we were seeing independent movements springing up, pushing for them as well. That would suggest a pattern where perhaps there was a common cause to, to all of these. On the other hand, if we see that we achieve abolitionism and yet many other conceptually related moral changes don't happen and maybe even haven't happened to this day, then that suggests, well, maybe the abolitionists just happened to get lucky. Maybe, uh, you know, it was an intellectual fashion that could have happened or could, have, could, could not have happened. And I think that's kind of an interesting question to ask is, to what degree are we consistent in following through on the moral convictions that might have, have driven this versus has society globally just cherry picked particular issues that take off and, and, and some others don't? And so <laughs> uh, things could have gone a different way. Yeah, I'm not sure what to say about that. I mean, I, I, one thing I think you should know and your audience should know is that, you know, the conclusions I've reached on this subject come from <laughs> many years of writing and thinking. Yeah, it's not a. Um, Sometimes there are arguments where you know what you want to say, and then you find your ways to support it. Mm. This is a view that emerged out of many years of thinking about the subject and the problem. So in the crudest possible sense, every aspect of human affairs is contingent, right? I mean, what does the world look like if Napoleon's parents never met? I mean, you can play this kind of game forever. On the other hand, you can do the thing of, well, but in in the end, the evolution of human society was going to bring us to a particular point. And really, in some ways, it's a matter of where you look. Are you looking at the the most micro of scales or the most macro of scales? To me, the reason why I think about the emergence of of anti-slavery campaigns is contingent is because there's no real precedent and there's no real comparison at the time. So there's not anything, it's not building on anything else that's like it. And not only that, it was largely unimaginable before it occurred. Mm. Right? So that's, that's the first part of it. The second part of it is that the circumstances are circumstances that were very particular to that moment that enabled it. I really believe, and I really think, that slavery is an institution as a set of practices so normal in human civilizations down to the 18th century that it took something special for it to become controversial Mm. and a target for intervention. And so I, I don't think that everything is, every movement is equally contingent. I mean, I, I would say, for example, that I think, you know, manufacturing the sort of industrial development is less surprising retrospectively than the challenge to slavery and the end of slavery is. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Um, I think the development of a women's rights movement in the 19th century is less surprising Hmm. given the development of an anti-slavery movement in the decades before. You know, you might say, this is hardly my field, 
But you might say that World War II is not terribly surprising given how the settlement of World War I. Now, I'm sure there are people who you know, get into the contingencies of that. But I don't think that, well, let me put it another way. The grounds that folks have offered for thinking that slavery in one way or another was going to end in the 19th century because of 18th century's trends are just not convincing if you know the 18th century and you know the 19th century. It's just not, it's just not convincing that as of 1750, that this was the direction that things were likely to go by 1850. Do you think that people in general underestimate how chaotic the past was? That I suppose I, I've listened to a bunch of lectures uh, recently on yeah, um, British history from the 15th, 16th, 17th centuries, uh, just, just independently of this. And it really feels yeah. like it was just all over the place. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, you know, the past is just incredibly complex, like the present is incredibly complex. Yeah. And our capacity to know about it is very fragmentary. And so you really everything that we're discussing is the best I can understand based on what I've read and what I know. You know, one of the things that historians are very well aware of that I think more general public might not be aware of is that understandings of subjects change. Mm. You know, I mean, I'm doing a lot of work on the Atlantic slave trade right now. Historians know a lot more about the Atlantic slave trade now than they did 25 years ago. I mean, a lot of things that were kind of true are just not true in the same way anymore. And that may be true, you know, for lots of subjects 25 years from now. And so we're engaged in the exercise of just trying to understand the past better, not to have the kind of the last or final word on the subject, but to suggest what the next word, you know, looks like. So, yeah, it's, it's super complex. It's super complicated. Yeah. So I've tried advancing some some theories uh, that it, that is, uh, abolitionism was less contingent. I guess if you if you had to make that argument that uh, uh, abolition of slavery was inevitable, kind of what would you find the least bad of the of the various different arguments or the or the most persuasive possible? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I've never thought about it. Um, it's really inevitability is also an argument one way or another about points of no return. So it's, it's inevitability is also a statement about when does something when does it become the working out of certain sorts of consequences that are built into an event or a moment? Mm. I could imagine a line of argument that I don't quite believe, but I could imagine a line of argument that said that anti-slavery was inevitable because of the American Revolution. That's actually not my view, um, but, I, but I could imagine a, a line of argument that made that case. From a macro standpoint, from the standpoint of cultural change, or economic change, or religious change, I don't. It's a hard case to I make. Mean, I don't, I don't, I think it's a really hard case to make. You know, one line of argument that gets a lot of air is that the inefficiencies of slave labor in the end would have become problematic in industrial economies, um, and I suppose maybe even more so in a knowledge economy. Uh, or even like, more so in knowledge economies. It'd be very hard to run McKinsey uh, with coerced labor. Well, that's right. And also, I think the other part that's actually even more interesting in some ways with the development of robotics, right? So that the, some of the drudge labor, to the extent that it can be mechanized, makes human inputs less necessary. Mm. 
The problem with that line of argument, to the extent that it has merit, it misses the ways that slavery was much more than an economic institution. It's also a strategy of difference and domination. Yeah. And many slaveholding societies have actually organized themselves around the possession of slaves as luxury items. The predominant slave in human history is not the strong man, but the young girl or the child. The extent to which slavery has served the purposes of sexual exploitation has never been taken fully into account and evaluated, in part because it's not, in most cultures, it's not terribly easy to document. Um, The ways in which slavery has been used to acquire and incorporate young people who then can become loyal servants of the powerful. You know, think about the kinds of stories that we tell about, that get told about child soldiers in sub-Saharan Africa. Now put that on steroids in the wealthiest parts of the world, you know, and imagine legions of soldiers built up out of captive boys taken at the age of seven and eight and given the means of destruction with the most powerful weapons and told, you're the shock troops for whatever, you know, work we're going to do, right? You know, slavery is extraordinarily malleable as a set of practices and institutions. And even if it over time had become economically less useful. It would have been um, useful to the slave owners. It would have been useful to the slave owners. And just think about service. I mean, you know, knowledge economy also goes with the growth of the service economy. And it's not hard to imagine service economy positions. Um, certainly they were in households, you know, in households, in elite households, all the service, was, you know, in the American South, all service was done by slaves, true in Brazilian households. Bureaucrats. I mean, the Roman Empire, many of the positions that we think of today as good government jobs were uh, filled by slaves. Yeah. And that's right. certainly true for a lot of, um, of the most powerful West African states in the 19th century. So, you know, I, I just think even if it was economically, likely to become less useful in some ways. Um, I think it's wishful thinking to believe that if it had been possible to exploit people in this way legally, um, then people would not have done so. Yeah, I'm with you on that. I, yeah, I don't really understand the logic of of this argument. I mean, especially when you realize how many very sophisticated, how much sophisticated knowledge work was done through coerced labor throughout history. Um, it doesn't It doesn't make a ton of sense. It's but by way of contrast, can you think of any major shifts in moral attitudes that you think were more inevitable or nearly inevitable uh, for some reason or other? Such an interesting question, Rob. I mean, <laughs> you and everyone else will have figured out um, what a skeptic I am yeah. about <laughs> the inevitability of cultural progress. In some ways, I think that should be a counsel of hope rather than despair because I think it says that it's really up to us rather than just letting the passage of time and the generations improve things. Things change because they're made to change rather than because the changes are inevitable, inescapable. I'm thinking hard on that question. I do think that there is a chain reaction and that certain kinds of changes make other kinds of changes more likely. I do, for example, think that, as I said earlier, that women's rights 
became far more likely on the heels of movements concerned with the rights of enslaved people. Hmm. So I do think that, you know, and it, you know, you can also extend this to, you can actually see these chain reactions even more recently, right? I mean, the civil rights movement in the United States anyway, in important ways made possible the gay rights movement. Could rights for gays and lesbians been possible um, absent the civil rights movement? Yeah, I'm sure. But was it more likely because of the model? Yeah. So so the sequence, you know, kind of matters for these things. Um, And it's not clear that you can segregate you know, one off from the other. I mean, you might even say, I'm not sure what I think about this, but you might even say that in the longest possible term, Christianity made anti-slavery more likely, even though it took 1,500 years for that to get, to get worked out. You know, I yes. mean, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I think you can, you know, you can, you can sort of play the, you can sort of, you know, things do build on each other. But I, I, uh, I don't know. Is, is, is there something that I can think of that could, I would be willing to cast as inevitable? I think my answer shows that it's hard nice. to fillet out yeah. one issue as if it's not related to other issues, right? You can't, it's, it's, you can't do the experiment of let's hold everything else constant and just look at this one There's thing. So many causal connections between them. That, that Christianity question was the one that I actually cut off a few hours ago. <laughs> we were talking about that. I was saying, I mean, some people have suggested that there was something about the moral message and the theology of Christianity that like, provided fertile kindling, I suppose, for people to oppose slavery. It maybe wasn't inevitable, but it made it easier for people to make the argument in Christian societies relative to some possibly other religions, both that exist now and ones that had existed uh, before Christianity. Yeah, do, do you place much, much weight on that line of argument? So listen, I mean, if we were in a formal debate and that was my side of the argument, yeah. I could I could try to make that case and I think there are some points in its favor. The problem is the empirical problem. You can talk about the logics or the implicit the explicit values or the ramifications of a certain orientation towards um, an understanding of humanity, an understanding of God, an understanding of uh, the inheritance of the Old Testament, an understandings of the, of the new revelations, and say, here lies the seed of which the anti-slavery movements would emerge. And there's just no challenging the fact that the first anti-slavery movements invoked the gospel to make their case. So all, that, all that's true. The problem is the empirical point <laughs> that, that Christians created slavery in the Americas. Um, well, something inevitable. It took an churches, awful long time. <laughs> so the, the, the churches were major slaveholding institutions that Christian theologians defended slavery repeatedly over a millennium and a half. So, you know, I mean, it's just, it's, <laughs> I mean, you know, and obviously there's a, because they say, well, that wasn't, that wasn't the real thing. The real yeah. thing was just kind of waiting to come out. And it's like, well. Sometimes the real thing doesn't necessarily come out ever. You know, I mean, it's, 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 well, it's just, you know, it's, it requires a great deal of selectivity. Yeah. Um, not just denial or evasion, but selectivity to find just in the same way it requires selectivity to say that, you know, Christianity is a religion of massacres, <laughs> you know, and all it does is Christians just go around massacring people and that's what Christianity is. 
Well, I mean, if you're very selectively, you could go through and find that, yeah. but you'd have to leave a lot out. All right. Yeah. I think uh, it's, uh, it's been a very, very intense three hours. Um, I feel yeah, very lucky to have been able to talk about all of these things uh, with, with you, but uh, should uh, should let you go and do, do some other work. Um, it's a very grim topic. I feel like it'd be great to finish on a on a high note, uh, somewhere, if we could find something positive. I often tell my students that my job is to depress people right. <laughs> um, and that I'm, I'm very well rewarded for always being the downer. I mean, look, I, I actually, um, it is a very depressing topic. It's not easy to talk about the history of slavery and the slave trade, not only for what it was, but also for its legacies in the modern day. Our wrestling with the legacies in the modern day don't become easier by refusing to look at the history, by avoiding it, or having complacent notions about how the world changed. You know, I think we, we need to watch ourselves individually and watch our, uh, the worlds that we live in and the people that we elect and think about what harms we do or what harms we authorize or permit because they just seem basic to the world in which we live. And I think that's one of the you know, lessons of these histories. Hmm. But I also want to come back to something I said, you know, a few minutes ago about if you take away the notion of inevitable cultural progress, then what you put in is the necessity of human action, individual and collectively, right? That the world gets, to put it crudely, better or worse on the choices we make individually and collectively not because things are just are trending in the right direction. So a sober look at that history, I think, is in some ways a call to get to work in whatever you know, sphere we inhabit, whatever our resources are, um, to find ways to identify the things that matter to us and try to leave them better than we found them. I mean, that's how we got to the, to the extent that things are better now than they were before. That's how we got here. And so I, I think there's a, if not a cause for hope, a cause for action that comes out of thinking about these stories. My guest today has been Christopher Brown. Uh, thanks so much for coming on the 80,000 Hours Podcast, Christopher. Thank you, Rob. If you'd like to explore some related ideas, I can recommend checking out definitely episode 134, Ian Morris, and what big picture history teaches us. Uh, people have uh, really enjoyed that one. Uh, there's also episode 102, Tom Moynihan, on why prior generations missed some of the biggest priorities of all. And naturally, of course, episode 136, Will McCaskill, on what we owe the future. All right, the 80,000 Hours podcast is produced and edited by Kieran Harris, audio mastering and technical editing by Mylon McGuire. Full transcripts and extensive collection of links to learn more are available on our site and put together by Katie Moore. Thanks for joining. Talk to you again soon.